Chris. Okay, okay. Nice. Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is not only May 1st, but it is the first Monday of the month, which means it's time for none other than Dr. John McDougall. We call this McDougall Monday. And today he's going to focus on kidney health. Please welcome him to the show. It's so good to see you again. What a great way to start the month and the week. Well, I'm just I'm just trying to complete my McDougall's Medicine Series. Uh, AJ, I want to appreciate, show my appreciation for you allowing me to present to your group. I gave you a little publicity last night. Uh, we did the five o'clock show, as we do every uh, Sunday night at five o'clock, Sunday, five o'clock Pacific time, where Mary and I and Heather get together. And we answer questions. And I told people, I bet I told them two or three times that I was going to give a presentation on the kidneys. I don't know whether that caused anybody to watch this show or not, but I, you know, I think it's important uh, to understand the kidney issues. I think it's particularly important because the line, the line is no more intense in any other field than kidneys. Because the effect of diet on kidney health is so profound and the economic impact, especially in terms of, of, uh, of uh, kidney dialysis, is huge. And so there's more lying going on, harm to the patient going on, than diabetes or heart disease or cancer. You know, it's just terrible. And I didn't really realize that until I started getting into this presentation. It's just how much, how much these people are distorting the literature. The, the spin doctors get in there and cause a spin. So did you think what you ate had nothing to do with your kidneys? And people are deprived from an opportunity of keeping their kidneys healthy or getting themselves out of trouble. And what they have waiting for them is what I call hell on earth. And that's the dialysis ward. And that's a, that's a tough place to be. Anyway, I, I want to teach you a bit about the kidneys, a bit about kidney health and you know, I know there's some of you that uh, have kidney problems and some of you have friends and relatives with kidney problems. You can do a tremendous amount. And you can see it almost immediately in terms of changing the health of your kidneys around by changing your diet. So that's what I'm talking about. How are you doing, AJ? I'm good. I'm good. And I love this topic because I actually have a friend that donated a kidney just out of the goodness of her heart. And I said to her, well, okay, now you have to go vegan, you know, and she, she hasn't talked to me since. <laughs> Isn't that the way it is? Isn't that the way it is? Yeah, but see, if she donated a kidney, then she's gone from 100% kidney to 50% kidney. She gave away half her kidneys. I mean, you have two kidneys. So you give one away, and that means you have 50% kidney function left. And so by, by standard practice, doctors who are involved with transplants are supposed to tell not only the recipient, you know, the person who gets the kidney, but the donor that they need to be on a low protein diet. But again, you know, the spin doctors have gotten in there and, and lied. You know, they're taking the basic research that's been going on for a hundred years and distorted it so that people wouldn't think of preserving their kidney function. Let's so get over their problems. You know, there's nothing, they don't want to, any, in any way for, for the patient to, uh, to disturb the road to the dialysis machine. Anyway, it's it's a sad situation, but you know you may find heart disease more exciting or breast cancer or diabetes or whatever. But I feel like I can convey to you the excitement about the kidneys and what you can do. 
Now, I have to tell you, there, there aren't many doctors that can take care of a patient when it comes to a diet therapy in kidney disease. Uh, I would like to be able to train some of my colleagues how to do it, but because it's not all that common, I haven't made a lot of inroads into sharing with colleagues what they can do to help their patients who have kidneys, and that's unfortunate. But, you know, still, if you want to come to our 12-day living program and you have kidney disease, I'll make sure you get taken care of properly. You know, I'll, I'll, I will for certain make sure that you get the right information about how to deal with your kidney problems and how to stay away from the dialysis machine as long as you can. Anyway, so uh, yeah, let's let's talk about and then we'll, it's not going to be a long presentation, but let's, let's talk about the kidneys a little bit and then maybe we can get into some questions and answers, preferably about the kidneys first, and then we can talk about whatever else you want. Over great, the yeah, they did send in some questions specifically on kidneys, so this will be great. Thank you, Doctor McDougall. Lucky, uh, lucky. All right. So diet and kidney disease, you asked for the title. I don't know. I don't know. Stop protein poisoning. How would that be for the title? Save your kidneys, eat a very, very, very low protein diet. Preserve your kidneys. You need to keep them healthy because as I say, life on a dialysis machine is hell on earth. And most of you are sitting there listening to me with at least half of your kidney functioning. And you don't feel anything abnormal. You feel just fine. But, you know, it, it may not be that way forever. And some of you are there having compromised uh, kidney function. And I know you're going to be paying a lot of attention on how to keep the, the kidney you have remaining intact and maybe even reversing some of the disease. Now, this is the, the in, in, a, in a series that I've been giving about frank discussions that you ought to have with your doctor if you have kidney problems. You know, it's my, my strong belief that you should be offered diet therapy first because it cures the problems. And then if that doesn't solve your problems, you go on to the drugs and the devices and the machines, et cetera. But at least give cure a chance. You know, at least deal with the problems first. And how long do you, does it take to deal with the problems? You know, certainly 12. I wrote a book, uh, McDougall's Medicine, 12 Days to Dynamic Health. I haven't, I haven't changed that prescription. My challenge to you is, whether you have heart disease, diabetes, arthritis, or whatever, give me 12 days. You know, just 12 days. You could, you could go without food for 12 days and do okay. But I bet you have a whole different attitude about your health, your life, and the importance of food after you finish five to seven days, but for sure, 12 days. All right, the kidneys. The kidneys are located uh, uh, sort of in the back, about the size of your fist. And they describe them as uh, bean-shaped organs. You see them there, the kidneys, right below the liver, right below the spleen. Yeah, just below the rib cage, each side of the spine. And they filter about uh, a half a cup of blood every minute. And they, in this process of filtering, this is, this is an excretory organ. It's a filtering organ. It removes waste from the body, you know, like environmental chemicals and protein waste, which is a huge part of its job. 
reviews or removes uh, drugs. Many of the drugs that you take are metabolized through the kidney. It balances your fluids so that you don't become a debitus or dehydrated. It uh, releases hormones, and you've heard of these hormones. They're uh, angiotensin uh, type hormones. There's angiotensin blockers and angiotensin receptor blockers and ACE inhibitors. They are related to the kidneys. They're just above the kidneys, the adrenal glands, mostly they're produced. But there are other hormones that, that are released from the kidneys that regulate blood pressure. And the, the final step to vitamin D metabolism, vitamin D metabolism, it starts in the skin with the, uh, the action of sunlight on the skin, which converts plant sterols into precursor of vitamin D. And then it goes to the liver and it makes another conversion. And finally, it makes to the most active form of vitamin D, the final conversion in the kidneys. And it also produces hormones that uh, regulate your red blood cells. Big job. The disease is common when it comes to kidneys. Atherosclerosis, you know, the kidneys are full of blood vessels. Uh, cholesterol and fat and lack of plant foods cause the blood vessels of the kidneys to become diseased. They get blocked. You have little heart attacks in the kidneys, and there's just a general deterioration of kidney mass. Uh, chemical poisons can, uh, can damage the kidneys. We're going to talk about kidney stones. We're going to talk about autoimmune disease. You can get infections in the kidneys, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that in this lecture, too. Uh, most of those uh, infections kidneys have, and we'll talk about that. Excess dietary protein is the uh, the most serious culprit when it comes to overworking and eventually damaging the kidneys over your lifetime. If uh, you have uh, shock, in other words, low blood pressure, really low because you're bleeding or you've had a heart attack and the heart doesn't function well and it doesn't deliver blood kidneys, you, you can develop permanent kidney damage. And we're going to talk about kidney stones. One in seven Americans have chronic kidney disease. Chronic kidney disease you know, means it's not going to get better with most efforts, except for changing your diet. Chronic means it's going to progress if you follow the standard American diet. More than 400,000 Americans have end-stage renal disease. In other words, they're facing a dialysis, a dialysis machine. And 300,000 of these patients require dialysis. You know, at this stage, most people go on to requiring this machine. Uh, to assess kidney function, so you can't see the kidneys, they're located in the abdomen. So you can't visualize them directly unless you do a biopsy or in some way take some tissue out or you have an imaging technique, you do it that way, but it's generally done by blood tests. And most of you have had these blood tests done and you'll find them on a standard chemistry. There's a blood urea nitrogen. Urea is a product of breakdown of protein in the liver. So the protein you eat, the protein you take in terms of supplements, the protein that uh, is metabolized in your, in your body is turned in the liver into urea. And you can measure the amount of urea in the blood. Uh, normally, the blood contains 7 to 20 milligrams per deciliter of, of urea. And try and remember that, that that's normal, because I'm going to talk to you about, about urea and what you can do in terms of the McDougall diet as far as changing your BUN or your blood urea nitrogen. The other test that's done, and again, you'll find this on your laboratory test, is creatinine. Uh, creatinine comes from the muscles. 
Uh, it is a derived from a, another amino acid-like substance called creatine. And uh, the, the creatine is part of the muscles and the muscles break down into creatinine. And the normal levels, again, you want to you know, keep them in mind are 0.7 to 1.3 milligrams per deciliter. And then if you have uh, you know, further analysis on your blood test, they'll talk about a creatinine clearance. This doesn't have to be too complicated. You know, B1 and creatinine are your, what you're most concerned about. And then what doctors do is they take the amount of creatinine in, the, uh, in a certain volume of urine and the amount of creatinine in the blood. They do a little bit of mathematics and they make some divisions and they come up with something called creatinine clearance. Well, you know, creatinine clearance is how efficiently the kidneys clear creatinine from the body. Uh, this reflects something called the glomerular filter filtration rate, which is the glomeruli are the, the little units of filtration that are in the kidneys. And this reflects how those little glomeruli are working. That's the glomerular filtration rate. So really you have two things you got to think about when you're assessing your kidney function, that's BUN and creatinine. And if you want to do a little bit of fancy math, you want to do a calculation called creatinine clearance. So based on creatinine clearance, or glomerular filtration rate, which is, you know, probably a better way of looking at it. In other words, <clears throat> how well the little kidney units are working in terms of filtering. Uh, stage one is normal or good kidney function. And that means you can clear creatinine uh, at 90 milliliters per minute based on a certain body square measurement. Stage two, mild disease, uh, 60 to 89. You probably don't notice anything in stage two. Your B1 may be normal, your creatinine may be normal. When you get up to stage three with a creatinine clearance of about half of what it should be, then you start noticing the creatinine going up a little bit. It'll go up from say 1.2 to 1.4 or 1.5 or 1.6. Then you have stage three or moderate kidney disease. When it starts to get really, really concerning, we get down to a creatinine clearance of say 15 to 30. Then you see the creatinine, that blood test that we just talked about, we see the creatinine going up significantly. It'll be up around two, three, four, five. And we get to those kind of levels, four, five, six, as far as, uh, as the amount of creatinine in your blood, uh, which represents a decrease in glomerular filtration rate that's very severe. Then you're in for a dialysis machine. All right, let's talk about the first and, and most common problem with the kidneys. It has an autoimmune disease. It's where the body attacks itself. And uh, these autoimmune diseases, they affect about 24 million Americans. And don't ask me why. I mean, people have asked me and I'll tell you, I don't know why 80% of the people who get autoimmune diseases are women. Well, when the body attacks the kidneys, if it attacks the filtration part of the kidneys, we call that glomerular nephritis. If it's leaking a little bit of protein out in the urine called IgA1 or, or IgA, then we call it IgA nephropathy. Nephropathy represents a general term for kidney disease. We have lupus nephritis, good pasture syndrome. I've actually had a couple of situations where I've taken care of people with good pastures. This is where the body attacks, not just the kidneys, but attacks the lungs. 
And it's due to consumption of foods that introduce autoimmune disease, which are primarily animal products. And then we have a situation that's really mild, really benign, which is where you uh, see protein in the urine when you stand up called orthostatic albuminuria. Well, what happens is <clears throat> when you develop, and we'll go through the mechanisms here in a minute, when you develop uh, autoimmune diseases of the kidneys, the kidneys attack itself. The body makes antibodies that attack the kidneys. And you see a picture of what an antibody represents. And you see in the picture what a food protein represents. What happens is the body makes antibodies against foreign food proteins, which because of a confusion that occurs in the body, we call that molecular mimicry, the body attacks itself. Not just the, not just the food that's in the bloodstream, but also attacks itself. You've probably seen this, uh, this schematic before. I've shown it several times, but it's an explanation of how you get autoimmune diseases. You consume animal foods like pigs and cows. Uh, they go into the gastrointestinal tract. What happens is the gastrointestinal tract should be intact so that these food proteins don't enter into the bloodstream. But sometimes the gastrointestinal tract becomes leaky and food proteins go from the gut into the bloodstream. Why does the gut become leaky? Well, a couple of things happen. Just generally eating an unhealthy diet, you develop a condition where you have a whole bunch of unhealthy microbes. Your microbiome is diseased. You, you have bad bacteria in your gut, which damage the gut wall. This is called dysbiosis. And it leaves gaps in the wall and causes a leaky gut. The other situation where you have a leaky gut occur is when you have celiac disease, uh, which is due to wheat, barley, and rye, which is due to gluten. And you develop a leaky gut. So you get this leaky gut. What happens is the food, foreign food protein, you know, like, like kidney tissue from cows or pigs gets through the gut wall into the bloodstream and now the body makes antibodies to this foreign protein, like pig kidneys or cow kidneys, because these, these are foreign substances. These shouldn't be in the bloodstream. The body makes antibodies against these foreign proteins, but because the immune system is not that specific, it finds similar proteins on our own body tissues. Molecular mimicry, molecules, mimicry, copy. It finds copies of what it's looking for on our body tissues. And in this case, what we're talking to about is, uh, is, is kidneys. And you might stop and ask yourself, well, uh, how do you get foreign kidneys into your gut and into your bloodstream to cause the immune system to make antibodies against them? You ever been to a slaughterhouse? They waste nothing. So, you know, the kidneys, along with the spleens and the livers and the bones and the muscles and the skin and the scrotums and the vaginas and the lips and the tails, they get all ground up and we make what out of them? Sausages, hot dogs. And so, you're, you know, most Americans are constantly confronted with this assault of foreign proteins from the slaughterhouse, from the cows and pigs going through their gut wall into their bloodstream and the immune system has to deal with it all day long. And if they have a leaky gut or an immune system that's even less specific than it should be, 
then instead of just attacking, attacking the cow and the pig kidneys in this case, they attack your own kidneys. Uh, this is a particularly important study I want to show you. Uh, this, this is published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011. This study audience, Chef AJ, should have changed the practice of medicine in terms of kidney diseases. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011. The title of the study you see up the upper left-hand corner, left corner is Early Childhood Membranous Nephropathy. Remember, nephropathy means just general kidney disease. Due to catatonic bovine serum albumin. You know what bovine is, right? It's cow. Okay. So what happens is cow protein, and in this case, primarily milk protein, gets into the intestinal tract, through the gut wall, into the bloodstream. The body makes antibodies against this cow protein, which attack the glomeruli of the kidneys. Now, I showed this. I showed this back in a book I published in 1985. You can see this one, one picture here in the center of the diagram. This is the picture I showed of what happens when you have autoimmune diseases. You have the body attacking proteins and making complexes that stick in the artery walls, or it finds proteins in the walls of the tissues that the antibodies attack. So here you see the blood vessels uh, uh, being attacked by antibodies or forming complexes that stick in the arteries, which cause inflammation. I published this in 1985. If you see this picture here on the far right, the green deceleration, this is uh, what you see when you do immunofluorescence technology, where you, uh, you tag uh, antibodies to look for cow protein and you attack the tag, tag them with a fluorescent substance. And you can see the antibodies. This represents the green attacking these glomeruli. All right. So anyways, they did this wonderful study. They found, they, they found seven children. Uh, four of them had uh, well, biopsies like this that showed the, the, uh, the antibodies attacking the, the glomeruli. And in this study, what they did is they took the four children they found with circulating bovine serum albumin. They took them off the cow's milk and all four of them went through partial or complete remission. Now this should, have, this should have formed the basic practice of pediatricians, of kidney doctors, to deal with the, the onslaught of patients that see that have these autoimmune diseases. This was largely ignored, this study, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this goes back, back many decades that we've known this. It's just that this particular study showed it with some of the, the most beautiful pictures, some of the most uh, sophisticated science, immunofluorescent technology. Anyway, that's what you see in here on the right. This is a glomeruli. The green represents the uh, the, the cow and the antibodies that are <clears throat> made by uh, made to cow protein, which are also attacking the, the cells of the glomeruli. A whole bunch of autoimmune diseases, just to be general in my discussion. What happens is you consume 
animal proteins. Oh, plant proteins won't do it. Why, why won't plant proteins do it? Well, even if they get from the gut into the bloodstream, because you're not a plant, it, it can't find similar proteins in your body tissues. It makes antibodies if it does, and it doesn't, I imagine on occasion, to plant proteins, but because there's nothing similar in your body, your body doesn't get attacked. But because you're an animal, when it makes antibodies to various tissues in the body, it attacks similar tissues in your body. A whole list of them. Addison's disease, what happens is, is the antibodies attack the adrenal glands. Alopecia, you lose your hair, it attacks the hair follicles. There are a whole bunch of arthritis conditions such as ankylosing spondylitis, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, uh, lupus, nonspecific arthritis, psoriatic arthritis. This is where the body attacks the joints. Uh, myasthenia gravis, this is where it attacks neural implants the end plates of the nerves and psoriasis attacks the skin, the mental conditions such as schizophrenia, maybe autoimmune diseases. And when the bowel is attacked, we have ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And you, you attack the pigment cells of the skin, you get uh, vitiligo. You know, this is, it doesn't just go to a discussion of people who get sick enough to go to the doctor. And the way I look at things, because consuming these animal foods, these foreign proteins is so common. And because it is so common for the general public to suffer from aches and pains and fatigue, I believe that basically everybody is going through these autoimmune reactions from the food that they eat. They feel terrible. And it's, again, due to the food. Uh, <laughs> Thomas Guinness, uh, he's the father of kidney disease. In 1946, uh, he told us, he said, based upon personal clinical experience, that the reduction in renal workload by judicious dietary protein restriction was effective in minimizing further loss of kidneys in patients with chronic kidney insufficiency. This was 1946, what was that? 70 years ago. You know, Anyway, what he went on further and said, he said, if, if you reduce the protein in the diet, then it'll reduce the progression of kidney disease and death by 33 to 50%. The basic science all says this, but what you need to understand if you go and explore the research is the spin doctors hired by the food industry, the drug industry, et cetera have taken this basic undeniable research that protein is toxic to the kidneys and they've spun it into a message where, you know, most patients and most doctors think this is untrue. It went on and discovered as many, many hundreds of researchers have, that if you restrict the protein in the diet, you either stop or you slow down the progression of kidney disease. You know, people who have kidney disease, they naturally don't like to eat animal products. This is one of the things that's been discovered even when I was a young doctor is patients with severe kidney failure, those who are either ready to go on dialysis or on dialysis have a, a natural aversion to eating meat and fish. The body's pretty smart. All right. That is relevant to people who already have kidney problems. But I want to talk about you and I for just a minute. 
through the normal wear and tear that occurs due to eating a high protein diet and other things that damage the kidneys. What happens is as you progress through life up until you get into say your well, seventh decade or eighth decade of life, which is where I'm at, the average American has lost a third to a half of their kidney function. Just, just from normal eating and normal living a third to a half of the kidney function is gone, primarily due to the high protein diet, but secondarily due to diabetes and atherosclerosis and so on. But you don't notice it. And the reason you don't notice it is because the kidneys are so forgiving that you only need 25% of your kidney function to clear all the waste from the body. Still, until you've lost 75% of your kidneys, your creatinine doesn't even start to go up. Your BUN doesn't even go up. You've got to lose three quarters of the kidney mass. So anyways, when somebody comes to me with an elevated creatinine, BUN, not so important, but an elevated creatinine is I already know they're in trouble. I already know they've lost, you know, probably 75% of their kidneys. And, and the time interval the amount of destruction that needs to be done to take you from 25% of kidney function to none is not long. You've only got a little bit of kidney mass left. Anyway, uh, this is something that happens to, to everybody is they're losing their kidneys. Where it becomes really relevant is when you've already lost some of your kidney mass. Like uh, AJ, you said you had a, a friend who donated a kidney. You were telling me just before we started that that person has lost half their kidney mass. And in that case, what happens is this becomes very relevant because you you increase the flows and pressures when you're dealing with half the mass as opposed to the whole mass. You increase the flows and pressures greatly and you hurry up these people onto a dialysis machine. All right, a guy named uh, Brenner. Uh, published a classic article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1982. Again, these are the articles that, I, that I've lived with my whole medical career, and the articles that should have changed the way medicine's practiced. Uh, Brenner, what he did is he uh, looked at kidney function, and he came to the conclusion also that a high-protein diet resulted in an excess workload. The work is done primarily by this unit of the kidney. It's called the glomeruli. And when you, when you eat a high protein diet, what happens is the, the protein causes the flows and pressures in the tubules of the, of the kidney to increase greatly and uh, it accelerates the damage. You develop something that's called renal hypertension. Okay, you get high blood pressure in the kidney tubules. And through sustained elevated pressure, caused by all this excess work to get rid of the protein, through sustained elevated pressures, you end up destroying a whole bunch of kidney. Now, you know, there's a quote here that uh, reflects how I started this presentation and how I'm gonna end the presentation on chronic kidney disease. And that's a statement that Brenner made in his article in 1982. What he said is he said, with the development and increasing widespread availability of dialysis, and transplantation in the past three decades. This was 1982. Relatively little attention has been paid to the influence on diet on the progression of kidney disease. You know, here we are 
you know, 40 plus years later. And he knew this in 1982, that because of these high-tech machines, not only has diet been ignored, professionals have actively campaigned against you knowing anything about how you can preserve your kidneys or even reverse some of the kidney disease. Of course, you probably know all this, don't you? Because you've listened to my lectures on heart disease and you realize that after the discussion, me showing you all the literature that heart surgery does not save lives. Why is that all you hear about? You don't hear anything about diet in terms of prevention or treating heart disease. Why? Because you've got this multi-billion dollar a year business out there called bypass surgery or, or angioplasty. You know, why don't you hear about the dietary implications of uh, cancer? Well, because you have a multi-billion dollar businesses out there that deal drugs and surgeries when you have cancer. And why don't you hear more about the effect of diet on kidney function? Because you've got the dialysis business out there. All right, when we talk about high protein, we're talking about typical things that people eat, uh, like the animal foods, they're even vegetable foods. Uh, beans, peas, lentils, nuts, seeds, avocados, they're high protein. In fact, the first book I wrote called The McDougal Plan, I put little symbols on the recipes. So like in the case of protein, I put a little pea pod. Case of uh, salt, I put a salt shaker. In case of sugars, I put a honeybee. You know, uh, I, I did uh, put a little symbols by the recipe so that it would alert you as to whether or not you had to be a little extra cautious when it came to choosing these kinds of recipes. Well, back then, you know, back in the early 80s, when I published the McDougal plan, when I was developing all of this, my intention was to take care of really sick people. You know, people who are, you know, facing the dialysis machine or the, or the heart surgery business. You know, I wasn't concerned about taking care of the general population. And that's why I went to such extremes as far as identifying all of these foods that could be detrimental to your health. But what I discovered in the last 47 years is that almost everybody's sick. I mean, just consider 80% of people in this country are obese or overweight. You add in their diabetes and high blood pressure and autoimmune diseases. Uh, you are basically talking about the fact that essentially nobody unless they know the things that we know and follow it, essentially nobody is healthy. Anyway, you need to be careful about the foods, the high protein foods, supplements uh, like uh, isolated soy protein supplements, whey powder supplements, uh, isolated uh, soy protein foods, you know, like fake burgers and fake hot dogs. These things are very high in protein. Your, your fake hot dogs are 70% isolated soy protein. You need to stay away from this stuff. All right, talk about the dialysis. There's an article uh, in the New York Times. It was uh, published recently in the last couple of months. The reference is there, you could read it. It's about the obscene nature of the dialysis industry. They point out that this is a, a $33 billion a year business. You know, they have profit margins that are huge. If people have to go to the dialysis ward, they spend four hours a session, three sessions a week attached to this machine that sucks their blood out, filters the blood, and puts the filtered blood back into the body. Not a perfect machine. 
and it controls your your proteins and and some of your electrolytes and so on, but doesn't remove cholesterol, doesn't remove fat, doesn't remove environmental toxins. Anyway, costs $90,000 a year to take care of one dialysis patient. A low protein, a healthy diet will keep people away from the dialysis machine and they need to know that. Maybe not permanently, for a long period of time. And as I mentioned to you, twice at least, the dialysis ward is hell on earth. You, I, I used to tell my patients, if, if you have any hesitation, reservation about eating a healthy diet, you come to the local hospital. You know, in that case, I, I, I had privileges at the local hospital. And I'll take you through the dialysis board and I'll show you what your life is going to be like. Well, that was one way to convince them. They didn't want to spend their, their few days left there. And I mean few, because when you're that sick with very severe chronic kidney disease, and especially when you're on dialysis, you have a very high rate of dying, you know, particularly with atherosclerosis. Which, by the way, is mitigated if you follow a healthy diet on dialysis. The problem is, I have to emphasize, is you're not going to get any cooperation. You know, the, the renal doctors are not trained in diet therapy, neither are the renal dietitians. By, uh, by obligation, when you go to see the kidney specialists and their dietitians, they have to tell you that a low protein diet is important. Maybe these days they don't. The brainwashing has gone on so severely that it's possible that these days doctors don't even feel that kind of obligation to mention a low protein diet and how essential it is when you're a kidney patient. And then you go see the dietitian. The dietitian says the same thing. You need to be on a low protein diet. And then both of them get together or separately. And they say, well, let me show you the dialysis ward. You can eat anything you want. We'll just suck it off. Not true. $34 billion a year business. Let me show you the uh, a real alternative to, to the dialysis ward in people with severe kidney disease. And that has to, that comes from the Kempner diet, which I've talked to you a lot about. Uh, Kempner is well known for weight loss, diabetes, high blood pressure, and also for kidney disease. Here's one of his kidney patients. It's kind of interesting. Walter Kempner didn't write much in terms of records, but he took lots of pictures. And here's a picture that he took of a young girl uh, suffering from nephronic syndrome, severe kidney failure due to glomerular nephritis, which is the condition we just talked about. The condition that's caused by, at least in some cases, could be caused by viruses or other food proteins, but it's caused by, in the case of the 2011, New England Journal of Medicine article in those four children was caused by cow protein, which came from milk. And so this poor little girl, she's suffering terribly. And uh, <clears throat> over the uh, well, next few months, she goes on the Kempner diet and is basically cured. Now, the Kempner diet, I want to go over that with you uh, just for a minute. Most of you are familiar with it. Kempner diet is very low protein, very high carbohydrate, very low fat. Kempner diet is made of white rice, could be brown, you know, brown will work just as well. Fruit, fruit juice, and table sugar. 
you know, and people who are underweight, he would sometimes add 2,000 calories of white sugar to the diet of the patients so that they wouldn't lose more weight. And those who are underweight, 2,000 calories of white sugar. And what happens? These people, well, they would thrive. Why? Because you remove the poisons, primarily the protein in this case, but the fat's important too. And you provide the body with energy, calories, in the form of simple sugar. And even though this is a lot of simple sugar, uh, a lot of lack of real food, these people were in very good health. You want to you read about it? You want to read about the metabolic ward studies that were done on the Kempner diet where you know, his uh, condescending colleagues decided they were going to prove Walter Kempner wrong and took uh, eight of his patients and put them in a metabolic ward and studied them? My December 2013 newsletter will direct you to that study and more work by Walter Kempner, December of 2013. Anyway, this is the extreme as far as taking care of somebody who has failing kidneys. But faced with the fact that you're going to be tied to a dialysis machine, don't you think it would be worth it to delay that experience or maybe avoid it altogether? Like in this case, or in the case of the four little kids that were published in the 2011 New England Journal of Medicine article. I think so. Well, I think at least you and your parents your relatives should be given a choice. You want to spend $90,000 a year? You don't pay for it, I know. Government does or the insurance company does. You want to spend three days a week, four hours each time, sitting in a dialysis ward on, on a bed along with a whole bunch of other people attached to a machine? I think you should be given the choice. And so uh, I would say probably once a program, our 12-day internet program, we have somebody that has that severe kidney disease where they're about to go on dialysis. We don't encourage people who are already on dialysis to join us unless they really want to. And I've helped a few people who have really want to. Why? Because they and I have to deal with the, the renal doctors and the, the renal dietitians. And plain and simple, it often doesn't work out well because they're not sympathetic to our cause which is keeping you away from technology and healthy as long as possible. All right, let me show you the results uh, of changing our basic diet, which is starch, vegetables, and fruits. Not, not like the Kempner diet. You know, this is an acceptable diet. I, I, I refer to the Kempner diet as the diet for the nearly dead. You know, I, I consider the McDougall diet for the living. There's no apology here. This is the tastiest food, the most varied food, the most enjoyable food, the least expensive food, the least toxic food that you can eat. And here's a study of, uh, of 1,700 of our patients. One, excuse me, 1,615 of our patients published uh, in 2014. Never been criticized. There's no reason to criticize our results. This is a look at people over the seven days they spent with us at the residential program, 1,615 people. And this is what we found. Look at the results here. The blood urea nitrogens in seven days, and people who had elevated BUN levels, they dropped 10 points. They were cut in half. 
in seven days. Now, creatinine is much more stable. They and, and we're dealing with much smaller values here, but it did drop a tenth of a point. It improved. And all you want is you just want it to not get any worse. Now, this decrease in blood urea nitrogen of 10 points, cutting the BUN in half, it represents eating less protein and better function of the kidneys. In addition to the change in diet that I help people with, is I get them off of most of their drugs. Because these drugs, especially the blood pressure medications, decrease the flows, the flow of blood to the kidneys. It caused the BUN to go up. And so we get improvement in their BUN levels, blood urea nitrogen, 10 points, seven days, by two things. One, getting the protein down in the diet, not extreme, but down, and by getting them off unnecessary medications and improving the flow of blood to the kidneys. And this will translate in time into preserved or at least a slower progression of kidney disease. Why not? Doesn't cost anything, no side effects. All right, so there are certain extra, extra efforts I have to make when somebody has severe kidney disease. We're talking about somebody with a glomerular filtration rate of oh, 20 milliliters per minute. There, there, there are running creatinines of uh, three, four, five, six. People who are really ill, they're not quite on the dialysis uh, machine yet. As I told you, that's, that's a, a very difficult situation. But I feed them a diet based on starches. The kind of starches I feed them are grains primarily, you know, like corn and rice and wheat. Feed them grains. The reason I feed them grains is because grains are low in potassium relative to root vegetables like potatoes and sweet potatoes. So if you're going, if you get to that level of kidney failure, you should focus on grains as your primary starch. Now, not, not only ourselves, but also the scientific literature has published the benefits of the pretty much the exact same diet I'm telling you about. Uh, you have to stay away from animals. Uh, that means dairy and poultry and fish and beef and chicken and so on. They all have to be out of your diet. Why too high in protein? Just, I just shared with you how protein puts wear and tear on the kidneys. Even healthy people. All right, you, know, you need to know all proteins aren't the same. Uh, vegetable proteins are much better tolerated by the kidney than our animal proteins. Uh, so when you're, you know, when you, if when you pick protein sources, you just want to pick the starches, vegetables, and fruits. But I still think you ought to be careful about high protein starches, like for example your legumes. And I recommend that somebody with this severe kidney disease. They avoid beans, peas, lentils. That, that's what I published in the book, McDougal Plan, back almost 40 years ago. And put those little symbols up there to tell you on the recipes. Is I recommended that in general, if you're on a healthy diet you, and you are healthy, you're not in kidney failure, that you limit your beans, peas, and lentils to a cup of cooked every other day. Now you say, that doesn't sound like a lot, 
Let's think about it. You know, a cup, cup and a half of beans, peas, and lentils every other day. There's some, excuse me, every, half a cup every day. That's what it is, half a cup every day. Uh, but if you eat a half a cup or a cup every day, there are many days when you don't have bean, pea, and lentil dishes. So you can eat a little bit more on the day, on the odd days. Anyway, in general, you ought to be careful about beans, peas, and lentils because they're about 30% protein. Uh, you got to be careful of potassium. Potassium's in fruits and vegetables and your underground storage organs, such as your potatoes and sweet potatoes. So when you start getting down to around 25% of kidney function being left, and that's when your creatinine just starts to go up a little bit, you know, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4. When you get down to that level, you got to start paying attention to your, your potassium. You need to check your potassium on occasion. When you get down to the point where you've lost 90 to 95% of your kidneys, you only have, say, 5, 7, or 10% left, then you can get into really big trouble by eating high potassium foods. But e even that said, when they treated kidney patients, stage 3 kidney disease, 3, you know, they, they're starting to get an elevated creatinine level with the DASH diet. They saw no problems with potassium levels. This is a big study done. And they fed them on all, I mean, their diet is based upon high potassium fruits and vegetables. The other concern that people have about for kidney patients, I know I'm getting a little greater detail than you probably need to hear about, but uh, there's some people out here listening who need to have this kind of detail. The other thing is that plants contain a lot of phosphorus and, and phosphorus builds up in a kidney patient. Well, what you need to know is that phosphorus is not efficiently absorbed from plants. It is from animal foods, but not from plants. And so phosphorus does not become a problem. So what you're gonna hear when you are faced with, you know, more serious treatment of kidney disease, your pre-dialysis or your dialysis, you know, you're getting your, 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 your blood shunts in, you know, so that they can take blood out of you. They, they, put, they put a, they put a, a a connection where you can easily tap into the vein. When, when you get to that point, you're going to start hearing about protein, potassium, and phosphorus. And I just want you to be aware that plant foods, until you get really, really, really sick, uh, don't provide a problem when it comes to these three areas. All right, uh, nuts and seeds. Well, nuts and seeds are high fat, but they're also high protein. And uh, they're low carbohydrate. And what we want to have is we want to have a lot of a lot of sugar, like the Remember, a carbohydrate is what I'm talking about is basically starches. So uh, the nuts, seeds, and autos are high in fat, and the nuts and seeds have too much protein, as far as I'm concerned, for you to include many of them on a, on a diet when you have kidney failure. But the one thing nice that you get to do is you get to add sugar to your food. Why sugar has no protein, no potassium, no phosphorus, it, just like with the Kepler diet, which is 94% sugar in the form of rice, white rice and table sugar. You get to consume extra sugar in a diet for kidney patients. All right. The other thing you have to deal with is you have to deal with vitamin D because the kidneys make the most potent form of vitamin D. It's the final stage of metabolism of D to make it into the most active form. 
which is 125-dihydroxyvitamin D. Almost all kidney patients get vitamin D supplements, either in terms of shots or pills. But what you need to understand is that the research done on giving these supplements shows no reduction in fractures. Just, just like for the general population, I've been over this with you in terms of my nutrient lecture. In the general population, vitamin D supplements are basically useless and harmful. If, if you take more than a thousand international units a day, you get into problems. More than 2,000 international units a day, you have an increase of falls and fractures. But the most important thing is you don't reduce your falls and fractures, even when you have kidney disease. So what do you do? You make sure you get enough sunshine. And if you are in a situation where you decide that you're going to take vitamin D, a good dose would be 400 international units. Certainly not 2,000 and probably not 1,000 international units daily. All right, let's go on to another subject. Just about done. Let's talk about kidney stones. 12% of our population has kidney stones. Most stones are calcium oxalate stones. In other words, after you pass a stone, the doctor says, bring it into the lab, I'll analyze it, and we'll find out what it's made of so we can tell you what to do. And what you find is that somewhere around 85, 90% of stones when they analyze it, will be made of a mineral compound called calcium oxalate. And what the doctor will tell you is don't eat green and yellow vegetables because they're high in oxalates. A few of the stones are based on uric acid. Uric acid has to do with protein metabolism, has to do uh, with another condition called gout. And again, it all comes back to eating too much animal food you get uric acid and you form uric acid stones. But I wanna to talk to you about the calcium oxalate stones because that's, that's the one almost always you'll run into. Is, uh, there are certain circumstances where we've just, we found out that the kidney stones are due to our diet. One thing we've observed is people who live in populations that eat a rich diet, like in Europe, the United States, Australia, these people have a high incidence of stones. After World War II, the incidence of stones in, in Europe went up tremendously, epidemic, as food returned to the populations of Europe. Uh, people living in Africa or Asia or India, you know, at one time they lived on a starch-based diet, a high-carbohydrate diet, low in protein. They have very few stones. So what happens when you have a kidney stone? Well, you suffer terribly. They tell me that it is worse than having a baby to have a kidney stone, the pain is. What you end up doing is you end up going to the hospital. Uh, in the hospital, they'll give you narcotics to help you with the pain and wait for you to pass it. And you will pass it most of the time on your own. It's a very bloody painful experience. Doctor will uh, take a catheter, go up your ureter and crush the stone and or grab the stone and pull it out. Or they have also uh, extracorporeal, in other words, outside the body, shockwave, lithotripsy. They break up the stones by these sound waves to the that particular area, and they'll break them up, and they'll 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 end up more easily getting out of your ureter and your kidneys. All right, so you're told not to eat vegetables because they're high in oxalates. All right. There uh, was an article published, uh, this was published in the British Journal of Urology in 1979. 
The title of the article is Should Recurrent Calcium Oxalate Stone Formers Become Vegetarians? 1979. They realized that vegetarians, the vegetarian diet, you're very unlikely to get these calcium oxalate stones. But vegetarian diets, they eat a lot of high oxalate foods because there are oxalates in vegetables. Well, how did this play out? You know, how, how does this occur? Well, <laughs> all right. The uh, on, on a, let's let's take a look at this graph here on the right. You see uh, the calcium excretion into the urine is very high on animal protein. You see that? Uh, and when you eat a high, high animal protein diet, the oxalate excretion is also great in the urine. You've got to have the calcium and the oxalate in the urine to, to combine to form these calcium oxalate stones. Also, uric acid is high in the urine because of animal foods. I told you that's the second kind of storm. So how in the world does animal protein result in high oxalates or high calcium? I mean, meat is essentially deficient in both of those substances. It has no, no oxalate, almost no oxalate, and has very little calcium meatless. Well, let's talk about how it occurs. The way you get the calcium into the urine to form the stone is by eating a high protein, protein diet. What happens is the high animal protein diet because it brings acid into the system, causes the bones to dissolve, and as a result, you get high levels of calcium in the urine. You get hypercalcemia from the protein that causes the bones to dissolve because of the protein's acidic nature. So that's how you get the calcium. Well, how do you get the oxalate? Well, let me explain to you how you get the oxalate. The oxalates are in greeny yellow vegetables. They're in a non-absorbable form. In other words, when you eat the chard or the celery or the turnips or the carrots, it all stays intact as calcium oxalate in your gut. It's not absorbed, but through a process known as, uh, as saponification, here it is, saponification, uh, calcium, the calcium oxalate that's in the chard or the other vegetables is saponified by fat. Fat soap, okay. Fat causes action that you see with like bar soap. The fat grabs a hold of the calcium in the gut and frees up the oxalate. That's how you get high high levels of oxalate from your food. Is it first has to be freed up by eating a high fat diet, and then you have the two components. Your kidney system, the calcium and the oxalate, they go together to form the calcium oxalate stones. All right. Last, last discussion here, and it has to do with bladder infections. Bladder infections can lead to kidney infections, so you don't want to let one go. Um, bladder infections are common, particularly in women. In fact, if you have a bladder infection as a man, that's an indication to see a urologist because there's something pretty serious wrong. But women, because they have such a short a short urethra, the connection between the bladder and the outside world. They have such a short urethra, they have an increased risk of having bacteria pushed from the outside world into the bladder. And this happens frequently during sexual relations. 
And that's why we call it honeymoon cystitis. You know, women commonly recognize or women commonly have bladder infections after they have a sexual intercourse. So what do you do? Well, you know, some women decide that they're going to avoid sexual intercourse. They could also have better communication with their partner and uh, their partner or they should come to the understanding that you can't traumatize this poor little urethra. Just doesn't work out well. Push bacteria up into the bladder. The other thing that's recommended is to urinate after sexual intercourse. And the two other things that are done, if you have the, the signs of a bladder infection starting. You've got burning in your urine. Maybe you even see blood in your urine. Two other things you could do, and some women do this right after intercourse because they have such a frequent cystitis. And they would be things like cranberry juice or blackberry juice, which has been proven scientifically to prevent the adherence of bacteria to the bladder wall and to not only prevent, but to cure bladder infections. Now you may hear this is very controversial. Again, it's the spin doctors from the side industry that want you to not put any attention into such natural, simple remedies. But the research is there. You can take You need to drink a whole quart of it at one time cranberry juice supplement or blackberry juice pill. But the other thing that, uh, uh, that people do, and again, we're talking particularly about women, is they can take antibiotics. And some of them take antibiotics right after intercourse. Uh, and that's one thing that they could do. But I just want to give a, a general recommendation for, for treating blood. You can and I have treated for the last, my patients for the last probably 40 years with single dose antibacterial therapy, antibiotic therapy, single dose. You, your doctor gives you, she gives you pills, septra, ampicillin, uh, other types of antibiotics that kill bacteria in the bladder. And you're told you need to take the pills four times a day for 10 days. Well, what does that do? That sells an awful lot of pills, doesn't it? But does it result in a better cure rate than taking a single dose of antibiotic? No, it doesn't. That single dose needs to be double the usual dose. And the way I've been treating my patients, you know, all, during all this time, very successfully, and again, the scientific research shows this is the way to do it, is if you came to me complaining of burning in your on your urination or blood, your urine, the urinalysis, and maybe some bacterial cultures, I would prescribe for you of three grams of septa, you know, nation drug. I give you one double dose, and you get a rate as good as if you took it for 10 days. All right, so that's hopefully everything. Uh, in summary, you need a healthy diet. Uh, McDougall, the diet you need to follow. You know,
And nuts and seeds too, because they're high to be high in fat. But the good thing is, and you you love this part of this message. The good thing is, is you get to eat more sugar. Sugar. When I say sugar, you know, those of you who have followed me for a long time know that I mean starches and fruits. But even, even simple sugars. There's a, a place because you're adding calories without protein. You're cutting down the amount of wear and tear on the kidneys. And, and in those special circumstances where you have to limit phosphorus and potassium, you're adding calories without phosphorus and potassium. Remember, Walter Kempner treated his kidney patients with a diet that was 94% sugar, white rice, fruit, fruit juice, and table sugar. All right, Chef AJ. They know everything they want to know about kidneys. Yay. That was wonderful, Dr. McDougall. I learned a lot. And we'll we'll take some questions now if you have time. Oh, I have time for questions. Yes. Thank you. Okay. So this first one is from Anonymous. It is on the subject of kidney health. And Anonymous says, for the past 25 or so years, all of my urine test results show a trace amount of blood in them. I've been told this is normal for some people, but I'm concerned that it could be an early sign of kidney disease. What would cause trace amounts of blood in the urine? Well, you know, this, this is the way I learned it too, is people who have no other sign of kidney disease, in other words, no elevation of BUN or creatinine, or not, you know, excessive blood loss that have microscopic hematuria, we call it, blood in the urine, is... A normal finding. Uh, I think this caller is thinking along the line that there may be some subtle inflammation that's causing the bleeding. And, uh, that was likely due to the things we talked about, say, action, causing a little bit of bleeding, but not enough damage to result in your kidneys failing. Um, yeah. There's also, um, Anyway, I have the content of the fact that you're going to do fine. Everything else, the function goes. You just have a little bit of blood in the urine, which is not unusual. Okay. And I'm sure the doctor checked you for infections. Check for infections. You check to make sure the BUN and creatinine are okay, too. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Sandra says, Dr. McDougall, what do you think about water fasting when it comes to kidneys and overall body detoxification? Oh, you'll have to ask Dr. Alan Goldhammer about that. Uh, I can't see, unless you became dehydrated and you didn't drink the water, that it would be anything but positive. I mean, this is the ultimate in a low-protein diet. Water is extremely low in protein. So I, I, I can't see that it would be unhelpful. It's, like, it's also when somebody has autoimmune conditions that, you know, that don't respond to the basic diet. I, I, I go in this order. You know, if you have rheumatoid arthritis or ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, as I start out with people, I put them on the basic McDougall diet. Then I take the wheat, barley, and rye out with the idea that they might have celiac disease, which gives them a leaky gut. And then I go on to something called the elimination diet, which is described in my May 2014 newsletter. The elimination diet is the, the foods that people are least likely to react to. This is based upon 100 years of experience, maybe more years of experience than that. 
But I've done I've done research going back to 100 years where people used elimination programs to help people with these kind of diseases, autoimmune inflammatory diseases. And uh, the the elimination diet, which again is described in my May 2014 newsletter, a newsletter titled 10 Cases of Severe Inflammatory Arthritis Cured by the McDougall Diet, May 2014. It tells you on the elimination diet, you live on rice and sweet potatoes, green and yellow vegetables and non-citrus fruits, all thoroughly cooked and water is your beverage. And you have to follow it for four to seven days. And usually with that, that period of time, if it's due to a food intolerance or allergy, you'll get better in four to seven days. And then what you do after say you've tested for seven days is you add foods back one at a time and you wait for a couple of days. You eat a large amount of that food. Say, say you're testing white potatoes. You know, you're on a diet of sweet potatoes and brown rice. Say you decide you're gonna test white potatoes because that's your favorite food. You eat just a whole bunch of potatoes. You eat hash brown potatoes for breakfast. You have uh, mashed potatoes for lunch. And uh, anyway, some potatoes for dinner. And after two days of this intense challenge with potatoes, if you're doing well, then you leave it in your program. If you're doing poorly, you eliminate it. You say, that's a food I don't tolerate well. And you go that through the whole spectrum of foods. You test bread, you test corn, you test, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it, it takes a lot of work on your part, but it is the ultimate test the elimination diet and the ultimate treatment. If you remove something, you get better. You know, that's that's not only the test, but the treatment. And you can confirm it by adding that substance back and you get sick. Why is it not popular to, to do an elimination program? Well, one, it causes the patient to do extra work. It takes time and effort. And number two, there's no profit in it. Uh, the doctor, the doctor, you know, they do things to people. They do things for people. Let's say that, in, ter in terms of being kind. And so they do tests, and they give allergy shots and uh, all kinds of different drugs for these uh, autoimmune diseases and allergies and so on. So it falls on a line with the high-profit medical industry for you to take care of yourself to do these types of testings, which results in identification of the source of your problems and the ultimate cure, which is I hope what you're looking for. Yep. People are asking Dr. McDougal, why no citrus on an elimination diet? Well, it's just one of those things that I, you know, I found and other investigators have found through the years is uh, lemons and limes and oranges and grapefruits. People have trouble with. It's based on experience. It has nothing else to do. I don't know of any research that confirms what I just told you. Particularly when people get, uh, I notice quite often people get canker sores, uh, sores inside their mouth when they consume, some people when they consume citrus fruits. All right, thank you. Um, this was sent in by Irene. We have been on a McDougal diet for six years. My husband, who is 54, suffered from several kidney stones before we switched to whole food plant-based. 
In the six years on the McDougall diet, he has never had another kidney stone. What is the likelihood that he could pass a kidney stone in the future? He offers, also suffered from benign vertigo, but still has episodes. Will that eventually go away too? Well, if you, if you were to do a, a, some type of a scan of the kidneys, say an abdominal ultrasound, where they just put sound waves into the kidneys, into the abdominal cavity, and they can identify stones. If you was stone-free, the chance of having another stone is like zero. You know, Roberts published the study in 1979. Should recurrent stone formers, calcium oxalate stone formers, become vegetarians? He asked that question in 1979. And the answer in the article is yes, they should, because you don't have any kidney stones if you follow a healthy vegetarian diet. As far as orthostatic hypotension, uh, in other words, he faints, develops syncope. Now, I don't have a lot of really profound advice there, except be careful when you stand up. Great, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you've done so well on the diet with six years. And, and you know, the thing I hear makes me feel really good is that, you know, not only did the diet help you, but you really found it a good way to live. And, you know, it's one of those things in life, once you learn to eat this way, you, know, you look in the mirror and you say, to my, you say to yourself, why did I do this years ago? I heard that Chef AJ telling me, you know, 10 years ago to make this diet. Why didn't I listen to her then? it's like everything else in life. Why didn't I do it? And the important thing is that right now you're starting to hear the message and understand it. Uh, so look to the future. Right. Thank you. Uh, a live viewer named Angela wants to know, is there a cure for stage five kidney disease? And would you take somebody into your program with that? And Beverly wants to know how she can get into your program. Uh, stage five kidney disease is kidney failure that is either pre-dialysis dialysis. Your, your kidney function is basically gone. Kidneys aren't working well at all. So what I take, I, I would prefer to have somebody come to me before they get on the dialysis. I've had a couple of patients who have been actively involved in dialysis who I've taken care of. It's a tough job. It's hard for me. It's hard for the patient. It's hard for the renal doctors and dietitians, but if everybody agreed, I'd love to do it. Not only for the patient, but for the education of the doctor and the dietitian. So if you can find a team that would uh, support us, you know, I, I would bend over backwards to help you. Uh, and you would do really well. And we'd all learn a lot. You'd learn a lot, I'd learn a lot, and they'd learn a lot. But you'd be the ultimate beneficiary. Preferably, I'd rather see you, you know, before you got on the dialysis machine so that you're going to delay the need or avoid, delay is probably the best thing, to, the, the most appropriate way to express it, delay the need for dialysis. You can delay the need for dialysis. Once you get on dialysis, you should follow a healthy diet. Why? I just told you that the number one cause of death in people who have end-stage, stage five kidney disease or on dialysis, the number one cause of death is heart attacks and strokes. So you're following a diet which prevents heart attacks and strokes. You'll feel better. Now, the kidney patients I've taken care of often have lots of sores all over their body. I've seen them clear up. Now, I don't know whether these are due to uric acid or you know, what they're due to, but 
you know, on a healthy diet, they'll clear up. Life is better. You, you, when you're on dialysis, if you eat a healthy diet, the dialysis machine primarily filters urea out of the body, protein. Okay, that's its main job. It also filters potassium out of the, out of the body. Uh, what they do is when you eat a higher potassium diet, it, they do your dialysis with a lower potassium bath. So it, it corrects the fact that you've eaten a higher potassium during the week. They do that easily. They've got different levels of potassium in the bath water than they use in the dialysis machines. So uh, you get rid of the potassium easily, eat a very low protein diet on the, what I've been talking about. And so you need less time in the dialysis ward. So instead of you know spending three days a week there, maybe we can get it down to one or two. Instead of four hours a day on the dialysis machine, maybe we can get it down an hour or two. That's been my experience, is you decrease the time that you need to spend in the dialysis ward. You dramatically improve your health and your future. So yeah, you should be on, on the diet and I'd be happy to help you, but only, look, you know, I, I'm at a stage of life where I don't need to have, I need some challenge, but not too much. So I'd like to at least have a cooperation from the, the renal team before I get involved, if you're already on dialysis. Doesn't that sound right? Doesn't that sound fair? You know, I, I, the matter of fighting everybody all the time is not fun anymore. Oh, it is too. <laughs> right. Here's a question from Michelle. Where did it go? I asked for a calcium score test. I scored 38. Is it reversible with diet? I'm in stage two CKD. Well, you're talking about two different things. Calcium score has to do with uh, heart scan. You're looking at the arteries and uh, you go through an ultra fast CT scan and they pick up the amount of calcium in your artery wall. 30 is not too high. Zero is, of course, preferred. 30 is a little bit of elevation. Then they might scare you a bit with your calcium score of 30. I wouldn't. Uh, the calcium represents old disease, disease that occurred years ago. In the process of inflammation of the arteries, the arteries get inflamed, they lay down, they lay down scar tissue and calcium. This is one of the stages of inflammation all over the body, not just the arteries in the, in the heart or any place in the body. When you have inflammation, the end stage of inflammation is calcium deposits. If you have bursitis or tendonitis, and the doctor takes an x-ray of that particular area, you'll find calcium deposits in the tendons and bursus. If you have tuberculosis, which used to be something I would see as a medical student all the time, you've got miller calcification. In other words, you've got thousands of little calcium spots on your chest x-ray. The end stage of inflammation from tuberculum bacteria. If you get a mammogram, the most common thing you'll be told if it's abnormal is you've got calcification in your milk ducts. It's the end stage of inflammation due to the Western diet. The milk ducts become inflamed and they lay down calcium. So this is old disease. I wouldn't even look for, for reversal. There have been studies where they've used statins which lower cholesterol. And they've tried to show that you can reverse calcium scores. 
No, they haven't been able to do that. But not most studies. So even though they had a great desire to show that statins would reverse these calcium scores, uh, the, the results from, I can think of one study where they did show some benefits, but you know, most of them did show benefits when they tried to do this. So I'd be settled with the fact that you've got old disease. And uh, the second part of the question, you remember it? Uh, yeah, CKD. Uh, let me look it up. It was about CKD and uh, stage two CKD. Is it reversible with diet? Stage two. You know, that's hardly any. That's just normal. Talking, are we talking about the arteries or are we talking about the kidneys? Or are we getting two answers for one question? I don't know. Um, I think she's talking about kidneys. If you have stage two kidney disease, you, you're, you're down to the point where you've lost about 50, 60% of your kidney tissue. All you need is 25% to last you for a lifetime. It'll 25% of your kidney mass will fill all the waste out of your body. So you still have maybe half your kidneys left and probably only half your kidneys left if you're gonna call yourself stage two. So all you gotta do is preserve the rest of that kidney mass, you'll live to be a ripe old age. Just stop the progression. And you do that with a healthy diet. That's, well, that's what Ada said, that's what Brenner said, and that's what I'm telling you too, and that's what the Balkan literature says. If you read it, you know, if you read it, you slow or stop the progression of kidney disease. And that means if you have polycystic kidney disease, if you have loss of kidney due to an accident, loss of kidney due to infection, loss of kidney due to donating a kidney or receiving a kidney, it doesn't matter what your kidney, underlying kidney disease is, reducing the flows and pressures in the glomeruli and the tubules, correcting the renal hypertension, preserves the remaining kidney mass. Uh, so, yeah, that's what you do. But if you already lost half your kidney mass because only half's left, you, you easily, just a little bit of protein increases the flows and pressures. You know, all the kidney mass being there, the body can tolerate a little bit of, uh, a little bit of extra protein, but you've lost half your kidney mass or more. Anyway. Thank you. I would encourage, I would encourage you to, that article. I would encourage you to read all the articles that I watched and find them all uh, on the, most of them on the internet free. And uh, there's a website called SciHub that I've sent many people to. It's SCI-HUB. It's a, uh, it's, well, let's just say it's legal. What it is is it's an organization that travels around the world on the internet and it makes available uh, basically all the scientific literature for you for free. Uh, their their feeling is, is that you paid for this research either through taxation, through government funding, or by buying commercial products. It's your research. You ought to be entitled to it. I think so. But instead, what they do is they sell it to you for like $35, $50 an article. That's not fair. And half the research is, uh, is under copyright. And they insist on you paying for it unless you go to SciHub. They get it free. Great. So Thank you. In this, in this day and age, I don't mind telling you folks that because I, I think it's a moral issue. 
for you as a consumer to be denied access about your health and not be able to evaluate things. You know, you, you, you're smart enough. You've got access to the internet. Why are you able to look at the basic science and decide what's true? You should. And I think you should take that trouble because it's more important than your refrigerator or buying a new car, which you'll take and search for days and weeks to decide what's the best one. Yeah, you'll go to the doctor and you'll basically do whatever the doctor says without a second thought. Don't do that. Be a good consumer. Your doctor will appreciate it. Thank you. Renee wants to know if people with one kidney, perhaps because they donated, should be more careful to follow a low protein diet. That's the standard recommendation from, from uh, nephrology groups. If you look up what's recommended by, you know, the Society for Nephrology or Nephrology, whatever it's called, you'll see their standard recommendation is for the donor to follow a low protein diet. Just for the reasons I told you. How often is this communicated to the patient? My guess is virtually never. But it, it is, you're supposed to do it. I mean, it's standard medicine. I, uh, you know, I, I have little doubt that you'd be criticized if you were a doctor who didn't provide that information to a donor, maybe worse. No, this is vital information. Thanks. Okay, this is from uh, Davika. My kidney function test was low and my doctors keep sending me to a specialist and he says everything is okay. When I had the test, I was on ibuprofen. At what point should I worry? I, I don't understand the question. Okay. I, I don't, your, your kidney function is low. Yes, her kidney function test was low. The doctor keeps sending me to a specialist and he says everything is okay. At what point should I worry? It, because she had a low kidney function test. What, what would that be? That means that I, I let's let me let me make an assumption. I assume that her kidneys are functioning poorly. I, I look for the cause, and that's what the that's why you're sent to the specialist to look for the cause. At what level should you worry? Well, when you start to get to you start to get to stage past stage one. Stage one is normal. When you get to stage two, how do you know you're in stage two? Well, you, you know by based on your creatinine level, the blood level, the blood test, simple test, probably cost you $5. If the creatinine is above, say, 1.2 or 1.3 or 1.4, then you have probably half your kidney mass gone. Half the, half the kidney's gone. You know, maybe as much as three quarters are gone. Remember, you only need 25% of your kidney mass to remain to clear all the waste, including all the creatinine from the body. So if you can't clear all the creatinine from your body, and that's by this blood test, again, very inexpensive. It probably costs pennies to get this blood test done. If you get it on a, you know, on a general lab test, you know, they do them for like 10, 20 bucks for a whole bunch of tests. So as I say, it probably costs pennies. If it's elevated above that range, above the range that's considered normal by that lab, the reason I give you several values is it depends on the lab you go to. If you have a slight elevation, then you've lost half your kidney mass. So you got trouble. And it should be standard medical care. When this shows up on a lab test, it's a big red flag. 
Your do doctor needs to talk to you about diet. Your doctor needs to talk to you about a low protein diet because protein is a poison to the kidneys. It causes renal hypertension by increasing flows and pressures in the kidneys because the body has to get rid of the protein. When you eat protein, you need very little protein from your food. You need 3% of your calories as protein to replace your hair, your skin, a few other cells, unless you're growing as a child, then you need some for growth. You need 3% of your calories as protein, okay? Sweet potatoes are 3% to 5% protein. Uh, potatoes are about 10% uh, protein. Oatmeal is 16% protein. Beef is 30% protein. If you're on the Atkins diet, you're eating 35 to 50% protein on these keto diets. Okay, so say you need 3% fixed to you know, repair all this little stuff, hair and skin and whatever. So you only need 3% and you take in 30% of your calories as or 33% of your calories as protein. What happens to the extra 30%? Where's it go? You ate it, where does it go? Does it, does it go in your muscles? If it goes in your muscles, then you look like a bodybuilder. It doesn't go in your muscles, it's never stored. So where does it go? It has to be, it's eliminated by being processed in the liver where the protein is converted into urea. It just floats around the blood. That's blood urea nitrogen. And it's excreted through the kidneys. It's in the toilet. You pee it out. In the process of eliminating, you create a workload, which overworks the kidneys. Brenner told us this in 1982. So he explained it all. Nothing's changed. Anybody who tells you differently is ignoring the basic science that goes back to, to the father of nephrology, Addis. And Brenner, another very famous nephrologist who everybody who's in, been in the business for a while respects tremendously. These people are lying to you, basically. Is they're lying to you because they don't want you to believe that food is of any importance. In fact, they used to teach diet has nothing to do with disease. They used to teach that. When I was in training, they always taught that. But now it's changed because enough of the truth's gotten out. And why has the truth gotten out? It's because of our access to knowledge. And why do we have that? Because we've got micro devices. We've got computers and iPads and iPhones. You know, the, the, the world is yours. You can look it up. And that means we can change the world and we can change what happens to you by this information. It's just, we're so lucky. So anyway, uh, you know, it used to be that diet had nothing to do with health. And now we're at a phase where, you know, diet's important, but, but nobody will do it. You're right. You know, you should be eating lots of vegetables and very little animal foods, but people are too stupid and too disinterested to make this change. And so your new, your ideas, it's accepted as being true, but it's not important. And then what they do is the final stage is this, and I'm waiting for it to happen. And it's happening. Believe me, I know it's happening because I see it. I see it in, in my colleagues. I see it in organizations like Kaiser and OHSU is they're going on to the third stage of an idea, which is when it's proved true beyond a doubt 
And when it's shown that it is important, then the next phase of an idea in its development is they say, it's not new. We discovered it ourselves a long time ago. And that's where they're at right now. So see, uh, all these organizations, and I'm going to get a little personal here with you. You see all these organizations talking about a whole food plant-based diet which I think is a terrible term because it really doesn't tell you what you need to do, but it's generic. It's not the Kempner diet. It's not the Pritikin diet. It's not the Ornish diet. It's not the McDougall diet. In other words, we discovered it a long time ago. We've known it forever and we're going to call it a whole food plant-based diet. Excuse me, give credit to the mentors. Give credit to the pioneers. They don't. I know that. I can feel it. I don't like it, but I can feel it. You know, there's so many amazing people that pave the way for this understanding. I don't know. I guess, you know, that's why I don't attach my name to the diet a lot. I call it a starch-based diet, but that's that's too specific. That's too close to McDougall. McDougall is starch. Starch is McDougall. So call it a whole food plant-based diet. Well, what's that? What's that? Whole food plant-based diet. Let's see. Spinach. We're going to have spinach and maybe a couple of tangerines and uh, some nuts, some broccoli, and you starve to death. Anyway, it doesn't tell you what to do. To explain to you what to do, I use the word starch. You need to eat a starch-based diet. What are starches? Beans and corn, potatoes, rice, wheat, a starch. That's what it's essentially everybody that ever walked this planet, with few exceptions, have lived on a starch-based diet. And I've told you this so many times before, but I'm going to repeat it again, <clears throat> just for the crowd. People in Central America and Mexico for 1,300 years, the Aztecs, were known as the people of the corn. Not the people of the pork chops, but the people of the corn. If you go further south to the Andes and you look at the Incas for again, you know, thousand years, couple thousand years maybe, the Incas lived on potatoes and quinoa. If, if you go to the Far East, still, you when, when I mention the diet of the Asians, you say rice, starch. And, and right now, every time you turn on the news in the evening, you hear about Iraq, Iran, Egypt, Ukraine. This is the breadbasket of the world. They, they didn't call it the tri-tip basket of the world. It's the breadbasket of the world. Human beings live on starch. So anyway, that's why I call it a starch-based diet. Gives it a little bit of uh, uh, acceptability, not much, because they almost nobody else uses that term. They they don't say starch, they say whole food plant-based. Whole food plant, well, what is your diet then? Well, let's see, my diet is kale. That's food plant-based. Let's see, my, my, my diet has several apples. That's plant-based. A little broccoli, that's whole food plant-based. And you starve to death. You can't follow it. And it's a waste of your time, pretty much. Until you get that starch. And that starch needs to be about 90% of your plate. And then you add the fruits and vegetables. So 
anyway, that's kind of where we're at. You got me off track here. <laughs> okay. So Dr. McDougall, I don't ever want to disagree with you, but you, I have to repeat a statement. You just said people are stupid and disinterested. I would argue that they're addicted Excuse and me. that's why they can't do it. Well, okay. But, but you know, I was referring to the way doctors treat patients. Right. You know, I, I, didn't, I don't really think patients are stupid. And just, I think the opposite. You think it's addiction. I think, I think that the food is, I think that animal products, especially dairy and processed foods are so addictive that that is why people can't make the change. Because I work with the people that want to make the change. And even after years, they, they still keep slipping back into the pleasure trap. Well, you know, AJ, I've had a few addictions in my life. I'm not going to go over them. I, I don't, don't think it's necessary. But I do know that when I cured those addictions, which I've done, I suffered terribly. That was not, withdrawal is not easy. Would you like to tell me about the withdrawal from giving up milk? Beef? I mean, do you end up going to a rehab center to do it? Do you, do you, do you end up spending your day and night in bed because you have suffered from such severe withdrawal? Tell me. Some people find it exceedingly difficult. Yeah, but it, is it really an addiction to the point of, say, tobacco or heroin or cocaine or alcohol? See, because when you say addiction, you're talking about some things I'm very familiar with as a doctor and a person. And then will you categorize those substances of addiction with, say, milk or beef? I have a little trouble relating. You know, but but I'm open to being convinced otherwise, and that's why I challenge you. Is show me why why you use the word addiction instead of instead of being uninformed and habituated. That's what I would call it. Is I think that most of the people out there like themselves and they like their life, and what they want is they want the information so they can change. But they they have some serious habits to get over. You know, there's all these routines. Of this is what, what I buy all the time. This is what I like. This is the, I'm habituated to these things. But when I stop them, I've never heard of a person stop screaming and getting the shakes. You know, so help me. Come on, AJ. Come on, Chef AJ. Well, I think the thing is with tobacco and drugs and alcohol, you can avoid it a lot easier than 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 some of these foods. So no well, worries. Plus, it's, it's easier to deal with it when you try and get rid of these things in your life because you only have one thing to take care of. You know, when it comes to tobacco, you just pick clean air. When it comes to alcohol, you just pick water. You know, when it comes to food, oh, good grief, there's like 10 million foods out there, or 10,000. So you got, you know, it's, it's not a single message. It's not a simple message that if you want to get over this addiction, you just have to do this. When it comes to food, you know, there's all kinds of things you're told, skin your chicken, you know, you just don't, you don't, you don't know enough about what to do. But, um, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to your description of, of addiction, but I just like to understand it better. And I do sincerely mean that I'm not trying to be ch challenging unnecessarily, because I, I hear a lot of people say they're addicted, I think it's a lack of knowledge, and just very strong habits. I don't see anybody going through withdrawal of laying in the bed, shaking, unable to think, <laughs> sweating, crying, screaming. I mean, I've been through, I've seen people go through addiction withdrawal. 
you know, I'm a doctor. I this is part of my job. So it, you know, it, it's anyway. Anyway, you all know. I and I, you know, I, I just think that it's some people. It just seems to be harder than other people to do this. I'll try. I'll try not to do that again. Yeah. No. No. It's okay. So back to the kidneys. Bill wants to know if grapefruits are good for the kidneys because he thinks they are and he loves them. Oh, why do I think so too? I don't know. Uh, maybe because of the citric acid. <clears throat> uh, maybe uh, I, I, there's something in my back of my mind that talks about grapefruits in the kidneys too. So maybe we can look it up, Bill. I mean, good grief. Come on, you guys. You've got these little devices in your hand right now. Look it up. Yeah, look it up. <laughs> okay. Well, we do the five o'clock show. I don't know if you've seen it yet. We do five o'clock. I watch it every week. I, I, I love it. Did you see me promoting your show last night? Thank you so much. That was very kind of you. Well, when we do that, you know, Mary's sitting next to me and she, of course, makes a great, uh, a great contribution because it's the food. But I'll say something like last night, I talked about the law of Laplace, which has to do with diverticular disease. And she's there with her little micro device looking it up. And she says, yeah, you spelled it right. And that's exactly what you said. Okay, so here you know, she got it right here. She's got it here. Here it is. <clears throat> High in potassium. Grapefruit contains levels of potassium. Many people with kidney infections should approach with caution. Oh, so it goes into what the lecture was about, not what this person, Bill, thinks. He thinks that... The grapefruit's good for people with kidney disease. Uh, the whole lecture was about how fruits are, and so they have to be avoided at the end stage of kidney disease. You know, when you've only got 25% of your kidney left, when your creatinine is up around two, you know, you're, you're months away from dialysis or years, short years. So anyway, thanks, Mary. Nice. So I want to thank Cressia for the super chat donation. And she has a question. She said, the doctor told my mom she's going into stage five kidney failure. She is not Ooh. yet on dialysis. Potassium is high and her creatinine is 3.9, only one kidney. Any suggestions? Would you take her into your program? She's currently on the standard American diet. I would. Okay. And I would be working with her very carefully during the program. I personally would be working with her. Yeah. Because again, well, let's start, Doctor. Let's start Friday, so she better get registered. Very few other people, you know, because no, I'm, not, I'm not trying to brag or anything. It's just I've been a lot, a lot of, in a lot of circumstances. I spent my life studying this, seeing people taking care of them, know how to take care of a kidney patient. It's tough, and not not many doctors are interested in learning how. But yeah, if you came to the program, I would personally make sure you got the right right guy. If you want to. Just call the 800 number, 9417111, I think, 9417111, or, or uh, just go to the, to the website, drmcdougall.com, we'll sign you up. Yeah, we have a great program starting next Friday, a week from today, or five days from today. So. Perfect. People are asking, how, is there a certain amount of protein we should shoot for? Uh, well, let me put it this way, uh, is that the people in Papua New Guinea uh, consume 92% of their diet as sweet potatoes, roots, and leaves. 
their diet is analyzed and is said to be between 3% and 5% protein. These are warriors. They have babies. They work hard. They participate in athletic events. So you cannot design a diet too low in protein. It's impossible to do it unless you do it in a laboratory. There, there's no food that is so low in protein that you can develop protein deficiency. It's impossible. You've never seen it. Think about it. Think about your friends and relatives, the people on the street. They have diseases of excess, excess fat, excess cholesterol, you know, not, not protein or calcium deficiency or anyway. Why do we sell deficiencies as being the problem? Because you can correct them with very profitable solutions. With excesses, you take away things that usually make profit. If you were told, if the general public was told that the reason that they're overweight and sick is because they're eating an excess amount of animal foods, just think of the catastrophe that would take place in terms of the economics. You know, the, the animal food industry is, is on top. They, they make the most money. Besides that the cascade of events would be huge. Can you imagine if, if people just clasp onto the message that they should eat starch instead of animals? What would happen to the pharmacies in this country, the drug manufacturers, the hospitals, the health insurance companies, the doctors, even the nurses, which I feel real bad about. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not in the economics of, of the world. I'm sorry. It just doesn't make sense. The only one that cares about you being healthy is probably you. You, you mentioned uh, the problem with having high creatinine, and a few of the viewers are asking, is there a problem with having low creatinine? No, there's no problem with having low creatinine. It's just, uh, it just like low BUN. But you, it may fall out of the range that you see on your lab tests because the ranges are established based upon what is common. So they take a whole bunch of people and they check their blood and they see that their BUNs are say from six to maybe as high as 20, maybe six to 17 milligrams per, per deciliter. Okay, uh, that's what they consider normal what the average population is. Well, in our program, I just showed you, I showed you the results. The creatinine goes down a 10th of a point in seven days. The BUN goes down 10 milligrams per deciliter in seven days. So some of our patients are declared abnormal because their BUN and creatinine are too low. Well, they're not too low. In fact, there's no such thing as too low. Okay, that's great. Uh, let's see if there's any more, because you, you want them specific. I mean, there's lots of questions, but I'm looking just for a quick, uh, just for kidney ones. Um, I don't know what this means, saponification and oxalate. Oh, saponification, okay. Uh, okay, when you, uh, when you take a shower, you wash yourself with soap. If you've got soft water, then the soap sticks to your skin, right? You feel a little greasy. You do, can you relate to this experience, AJ? Yeah. Soft water. Okay, so this the soap, which is fat, doesn't have a lot of minerals to combine to. And so the soap stays on the skin. 
because you, you have in soft water. If you wash in hard water in your shower, you got lots of minerals. So the soap combines with the minerals and it's washed off. All right. So this is called soaponification. What happens when you eat fat? The fat combines with the calcium and, and, and the, the calcium oxalate compound break up. And so the fat, just like it does in the shower, saponification, the fat complexes with the calcium and goes all through the stool and the oxalate is freed up and it's absorbed through the intestinal tract. That's the best explanation I've ever given for saponification. Do you like that? Cool. Yeah. So that doesn't necessarily have anything. I, I bet you didn't think I could get your kidneys to relate to your shower, did you? <laughs> that's what that's what saponification is. And, and it explains to you why most stones are calcium oxalate and why it is not only okay, but you should consume high calcium oxalate vegetables because the oxalate is compounded with calcium. It's not absorbable. It doesn't leave the plant. <laughs> it's not absorbed in the body. But once it goes through saponification, which means you eat oil or fat, and, and I, I, we're talking about vegetable oil, like olive oil. And they even have olive oil soaps. Yeah? And you use in your shower. Okay, so, uh, you know, the, the, the bottom line is the calcium oxalate is compounded, not absorbable, stays in the plant, never a problem, doesn't enter your body until you eat fat with it. And then you, through saponification, you end up freeing up the calcium oxalate and making a soap out of the fat, out of the calcium in the fat. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Nice. That's a good so you mentioned in the presentation that that oh gosh where is this that high protein diets can and something about high protein diets and leaky gut in your presentation and can eating soy cause leaky gut? Oh, I don't think I mentioned soy cause leaky gut. Soy. I, what I've tried to say about soy is there's a lot of isolated soy protein foods, like hot dogs are seventy percent isolated. And soy protein. You know, these burgers that you eat, you know, 50 to 70% isolated soy protein. So there's a lot of protein, which the kidneys have to deal with. You know, it has less trouble dealing with the plant proteins than it does the animal proteins, but still go someplace. Uh, so I, that's the way I want you to think about the problem of soy, particularly, specifically isolated soy protein foods. Probably not tofu, probably not miso, probably not tempeh, probably not soy milk. Okay, those are those are uh, things you make in your kitchen. These are things you make in, you know, the isolated soy protein foods you make in a factory. <clears throat> you take soybeans, you grind them up, you wash them with water, alcohol, an alkaline solution, an acid solution, and you wash the fiber the vitamins, the minerals, the carbohydrates, the fats, you wash everything away. And you're left with a, a pile of protein. That's it, isolated soy protein right here, bag of protein. And then you take it, you put that in a vat along with uh, wheat proteins and dairy and eggs and a whole bunch of other stuff. And you put it in this vat and you mix it up, okay? And then you take it, you pour the vat of stuff in a machine that, that it, 
the beginnings of this machine started in the home building industry, producing fiber boards. They create high pressures and temperatures, and they turn this into something that looks like a burner. It's not a chemical concoction. Yeah, I, so that's why I mentioned soy. But what I mentioned was uh, you get a leaky gut where, where the proteins from animals, primarily because you're an animal, that's the ones that are, are, you cross-react with because you're an animal, where animal proteins get intact through the gut wall into the bloodstream. And you develop this leaky gut, either because you eat an unhealthy diet. You've had a lot of people on who talk about the microbiome. And they talk about how this causes a leaky gut when you grow the wrong bacteria in your colon. And why do you grow the wrong bacteria in your colon? Because you feed them improperly. You feed them stuff they like to eat. The good guys, they stay. They stick around. So you feed a high-carbohydrate diet. You have coliforms in your colon. Really good guys. And they stay there. You eat animal foods. And you get, you get uh, gram-positive bacteria, which are real bad guys. And so it depends on what you feed them. So you develop this dysbiosis. The other way you get a leaky gut is through toxicity to the inner lining of the gut caused by gluten, which is a protein glucose moiety that's present in high concentrations in wheat, barley, and rye. That's you do, then once you get a leaky gut, then the intact animal proteins go into the bloodstream. They float around. The immune system, the lymphocytes, beta cells, they look and they say, look, this is a, a foreign protein. This could be a bacteria. It could be a virus. I need to make an antibody against it. But what it does is it makes an antibody against a, an animal part, like a thyroid gland or a gut part or a joint part. But it's not specific just to the cow and the pig thyroids or kidneys. You've got thyroids and kidneys too. So because it's not totally specific, it attacks your own thyroid. And that's why you have immune disease. And that's the body attacks itself, which is what you hear every time someone talks to you about autoimmune disease. You say, what causes it? Or you, somebody says to you, what causes it? And you're told the body attacks itself. And you say, how stupid for the body to attack itself. Why is it doing that? It's because of what I just told you. Because you're eating a diet not intended for the human body. And so you cause it damage. And you overtax the immune system. And it ends up attacking yourself. The body doesn't do bad things or it doesn't do wrong things. It does the best it can under the circumstances. And when you feed it the Western diet, the animal food-based or highly refined diet, your body isn't working extra overtime to keep you from dying. You should, you should just pat your body on the back and say, what a good body. You know, it's amazing. You should be so, so thankful. Instead of asking, how could so much disease be caused by eating these horrible foods? You should be instead praising the body for surviving the kind of insult. Okay, there's a question about polycystic kidney disease, if you could talk about that. This is an inherited condition, runs in the families, and you develop cysts 
uh, in the kidney matter, which replace normal kidney. The reason I mention it is because people with polycystic kidney disease, they get the same benefits from a low protein diet. Why? Because there's a low, most of their kidney mass or a good share of it is still real kidney. And the rest of it is non-functional kidney, which are the cysts. And so you want to preserve what's left of the real kidney. So for people with polycystic kidney disease, this is just as important, what I've told you. As somebody who has donated a kidney or lost one in an accident or has glomerular nephritis, maybe, maybe I can make the case that with glomerular nephritis, it's even more important to get the animal foods out because you have the autoimmune component. But just the wear and tear, the wear and tear. If you have polycystic kidney disease, say cysts occupy half or more of your kidney mass, then what's left, it has to deal with all that protein you're eating. And, and it, it creates very high pressures and flows. Remember, it's called renal hypertension. In the Journal of Medicine, 1982, Brenner wrote the article. Really important article. You guys, you ought to, that ought to be how you spend your afternoon reading Brenner's work. There's nothing better to do, I'm sure. I spent yesterday afternoon reading it. <laughs> And I loved every minute of it. I can't tell you how much I love the research. I probably read the paper 30 times in my career. I cited it maybe a dozen times. And, and I, this weekend, I read it over again to get ready for this presentation that I gave. And I, you know, it's like reading a novel for me when I read scientific research. You know, Mary reads, you know, novels, books, stuff like that. And I read journals, you know, I can't help it. We're different. <clears throat> Vicki wants to know what could cause a kidney stone in somebody just starting out on a plant-based diet. What could cause a kidney to fail? A kidney stone, if somebody just started a plant-based diet to cause a kidney stone. It was from your years, your years ago of eating all that animal food. I think that's what the question was. Yeah, what for a person just starting out, what could possibly it cause a kidney stone? It takes decades to develop these stones. And these stones, they, they get in the kidney. You should not have them removed. They, they sit up in what we call the pelvis of the kidney, which is, which is the, the bigger part of the ureter, which is right next to the kidney. There's this, what we call pelvis, which is a big area. And that's where the stone forms. And then they pass. And uh, it's the process of passing the stone through this tiny ureter, which is the tube between the kidney and the bladder. So as it tries to move in the, in, through this narrow tube called the ureter, it just hurts terrible. Terrible. You know, my next door neighbor many years ago had kidney stones, and his wife called me over. And said, you know, Don, Don, he's laying on the bathroom throwing up. What am I going to do for him? You're a doctor. What are you going to do for him? I said, put him in the car and take him to the hospital so they can give him a shot and he can pass the stone. I can't do anything yet. You're just, you're, you're in the hands of the medical business once you get to that stage. I don't know, you know, it's not the time to eat a low protein vegan diet. Uh, that's the time when you need modern medicine. You go and you get narcotics. To help with the pain and uh, maybe 
the lithotripsy, and the urologist intervenes and catheterizes or crunches the stone up and gets relief. I hear it's a really big deal, uh, AJ, if people have had kidney stones. As I say, they describe it as worse than maybe, which I can't relate to either, so it doesn't help me. Yep, I'm seeing if there's any more. The person that asked about saponification wanted to know if they put fat in their salad dressings. Is I, I don't really understand the questions or what it has to do with. Well, any wise. fat that you eat is going to cause the calcium oxalate in your vegetables to saponify, which releases the oxalate. So uh -huh. yes, okay. but you know not. Not that many, what did I say? I, I don't know whether I gave you the data on kidney stones. So I gave you some data, but it's, they're pretty common. You hear, you hear about a lot of people getting kidney stones. So it must be a real important issue. But isn't water drinking a part of it? I have a friend who follows yeah. our diet, but he drinks zero water and he gets kidney oh, stones. Yes. Literally, he, does, he, he drinks no water ever. Right. Dehydration is a part of it. There are other things involved just be, besides what I just told you, but primary issues. Yeah, when you become dehydrated, then the whatever calcium oxalate is in the urine becomes more concentrated and you have more chance of having it form a stone. Yeah. Okay, I don't know what this has to do with kidney health, but it's such a funny question, I'll ask it. Can clothes like girdles, belts, and spandex that are worn to hold in the midsection be harmful? Uh, I don't know. You hear that one, Mary? She's gonna look it up. Uh, I suppose you you could. I'm, I'm trying to think back of anything I know about. Or it's you know like compress the liver, and I don't know. So I, there are not that many people wear those things anymore, do they? <laughs> You'd be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. So what about if somebody is already on dialysis, then what about the diet? Kath is asking what are healthy vegetables then? Okay. The, and that's why what part of the lecture I went through, which I know lost most of you. I, they gave that part of the lecture to help people who are at the end stage kidney disease. You need to eat low protein, high carbohydrate, lower potassium starches. And your lower potassium starches are your grains, corn, wheat, rice, your grains. Your under, these are what we call above ground storage organs. They grow above the ground, grains do. The other above ground storage organ is legumes, beans, peas, lentils. They grow above the ground, <laughs> but they're too high in protein to be part of the diet. Underground storage organs that grow under the ground like potatoes and sweet potatoes and turnips and bulbs and corns and things like that, they're very high in potassium and they've, they've got to be, you got to stay away from those. So the diet is based on grains. Doesn't, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't matter what grain, all of them are relatively low in potassium. And to that, you add uh, a little bit of green and yellow vegetable, a little bit of fruit, and some simple sugar. Stay away from beans, peas, and lentils. Yeah. The, the phosphorus is not important because it doesn't, the phosphorus doesn't have much impact when it comes from plants, even though those plants are quote high in phosphorus. 
That's a problem for kidney patients, but it's not if they were on a plant-based diet. As I told you, the DASH study, which looked at kidney patients and fed them a diet similar to what I recommend, never saw a problem with potassium, even with people with severe kidney failure. And I gave you the reference for that on the slide. So I, I, the way I do it is this, is if, you're, if you have less than 25% of your kidney function, which means your creatinine is, say, two, and I have you check your potassium occasionally. And that depends upon you know, how rapidly I think you're going to change. Uh, it could be once a month or it could be once every six months. And then if you start getting down to a potassium level below 10%, and the values I read differ. They, some people say 5%, some people say 7%. Then potassium becomes a real issue when you're down to only 5 to 7% of your kidney mass left. So then you've got to really make some effort to stay away from fruits and high potassium vegetables, which are your underground storage organs, potatoes, sweet potatoes, et cetera. See, it's, this is hard. You know, this is why this is why I wish I could I could convey this understanding to other physicians. That's the reason that I put this talk together, AJ, which I'm going to continue to develop over the next six to twelve months. Is I'm putting together lectures for my colleagues, correctly so that there's going to be a day when I won't be able to do that anymore. So I'm putting together a series of lectures that'll be CME credited. In other words, doctors will get really important points to their education. So I've made an arrangement with a, with a CME approval company, and I'm going to do a series of lectures intended for physicians. And because I, I just believe someday they're going to want to know this. They're going to want to know how to treat heart disease and breast cancer and diabetes. Now they're doing terrible. So it's a bunch of drugs, a bunch of excuses, a bunch of sick people getting sicker, getting sicker. And you, you show me different. You show, you show me people who go on these drugs, who go through these procedures, who look and feel better, much less heal. I don't ever see it. Do you ever see it? Look at your friends and relatives. I believe that someday some of my, I'm tired of patients. Not going to do that anymore. I'm going to learn therapy, and you know, I'm still teaching. Uh, unfortunately, I think I'm probably the only one that would willing and able to teach. At least no one else I know can do it. There are people who can teach diet therapy in terms of specific illnesses, like Dean Arnish and heart disease, and Neil Bernard, and he, he could do really well in diabetes, but. Uh, you know, when it comes to the the number of diseases that I've taken care of, I, uh, I don't know anybody that has this wide a spectrum of, uh, of knowledge on diet therapy as I've gained over the last fifty years. I don't mean to, don't mean to some, you know, like <clears throat> I, I I I don't want to make you feel like I'm saying something egotistic. I just I spent 50 years learning these things. I still know them. I can still teach them. I want to share, you know, and uh, I particularly would like to share with my fellow doctors, physicians, osteopaths, et cetera, because they're the ones that can help you directly. So that's where I'm putting a lot of my effort now. And the lectures, actually, you give me a real opportunity, AJ, 
for the last year and a half, and I told you this when we started, you give me the opportunity to talk to this wonderful audience. And we started out with a lecture on breast cancer, and we've talked about uh, we talked about uh, diabetes and heart disease and high blood pressure and cholesterol, obesity, hunger. I've I've probably done and uh, some of the lectures on on uh, vitamins and minerals. I haven't given them all here, but I've given some of them. I had I have put together about twenty lectures, twenty hours of lecture, which uh, represent a book that I did back in 1984 was published called McDougall's Medicine, A Challenging Second Opinion. Now, people have asked me, why did you update that book? It, by the way, that book we, is really, really inexpensive on the website. It's like $10, but we also at times give away for free. Uh, McDougall's Medicine, Challenge, Challenging Second Opinion, which I own the rights to the book. It was a national bestseller. <clears throat> and uh, people ask me, why did you update that book? Well, I have, I used to do it through my newsletters. I stopped doing the newsletters in 2017. So right now, the way I update uh, those basic lectures, chapters that I wrote about in McDougall's Medicine Challenging Second Opinion, and that I updated in the newsletters, I now update in lectures. And that's why I take the trouble to give you the reference in the bottom left -hand corner. So that those of you who are particularly interested because you're a patient or a healthcare deliverer, can take the trouble to look up the literature and learn even more and to see that this is true beyond a shadow of a doubt. And until you get the spin doctors in there that work for the drug companies and the food companies, then they spin it. I'll tell you, it's, it's embarrassing because I see what they're doing. I know how they lie. And the casual observer doesn't, but I, I just, I know, how they, I know how they get away with it because I know the literature well enough. So I know the trickery that they do, and they're well paid, and they do a good job for the companies, but a bad job for you and I, and your and your doctor. They lie to your doctor, so you're not able to get the care that you want. This is I have some couple of questions about your program, and guys, you know it, it starts Friday, so get registered. Yeah. Beverly says I am a diabetic with stage three B kidney disease, and I am on insulin. Is this a good program fit for me? Absolutely. It couldn't have been designed better for you. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, 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 this is what the whole program is about, is to get you in the best health possible. Our success rate with type 2 diabetes is essentially 100%. You know, uh, and I, I just dealt with somebody who said, you know, you shouldn't talk that way, John. People aren't going to believe you. You should say, you know, it, almost always, you know, use those kind of terms, but, but it's 100%. So why, why would I say something different? Well, because you know people don't believe folks when they talk in those terms. Okay, but I'm not gonna stop talking in those terms. So uh, maybe you don't have type two, maybe you got type one and a half, we'll get you on a single dose of insulin. You know, if, if you choose, or it's gonna be your final decision, but the way we'll care for you, Dr. Lim and I, is we'll put you on a minimal amount of medication, and at the same time, we'll feed you a diet that is really, really good for weight loss, which I would guess you need. And a diet that's really good for type 2 diabetes cures it 100% of the time. And it gets you on the minimal amount of medication if you're type 1.5 or 1. And will be the kindest diet to your kidneys. Absolutely. This is, you're an ideal patient. In fact, you probably, my guess is you probably cover 
out of the 10 chapters in McDougall's Medicine, you probably are talking about in half of them, at least. <laughs> you know, some people, they, they, when they meet me, they say, well, how'd you know all about me? Well, because you're so common, because you're the norm. You know, because I've had 50 years to try and help you. You know, you're not special. You, I mean, you're special, but you're not special in the sense that you're not unique. Uh, it's, it's what your friends and neighbors and relatives are suffering from. Uh, they, they are, pretty, as I mentioned, pretty much all ill. 80% of the people, just that, 80% of the people are overweight or obese in this country. Half are pre-diabetic. Half die prematurely of heart attacks and strokes. Almost everybody feels terrible. So I don't think it's an exaggeration to say pretty much everybody's sick. It may not be a good way to sell the program to talk in terms of those terms. Yeah, I should just say, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't, I don't, I'm not very good at making people happy or winning a popularity contest. Never been good at that. I mean, I make them happy, but I'm just not good at winning a popularity contest. I politically correct has not been my norm. That's why we love you, Dr. McDougall. Well, so Cheryl, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, I, I never made an oath to make sure that the, uh, the, the medical business stays healthy. I never took that oath. Well, I do remember taking an oath that I would do the best I could to help you and to do you no harm. I took that oath. But as far as the financial welfare of the drug companies, my fellow colleagues, hospitals, et cetera, I never took an oath to make them well. Cheryl says, is your program suitable for people who cannot eat grains and only a small amount of potatoes and starches? And I asked her to clarify, why would that be the case? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we, we, there's, there's probably a thousand different starches you can find if you look around the world. So, you know, if you tell me you can't eat any grains, legumes, or, or potatoes, or if you tell me you can't eat above ground or, or below ground storage organs, then I got nothing to feed you. Though you cannot get enough calories from vegetables, non starchy vegetables, you'll starve to death. You can't make it on fruits, uh, they're not satisfying enough. I don't, I've never met anybody who's staying on a fruitarian diet. I met a few people that tried, like Steve Jobs. I never met him, but I knew about him. Steve Jobs, you know, the computer guy. He was a fruitarian for a while. I met a few other people who were fruitarians for a few weeks or months. You have to live on You know that. You know, you're a person of history, a person of geography. You know this. You know, almost everybody who's walked this earth has attained the bulk of their couch of starch. The exceptions are real exceptions, like the Inuit Eskimo up in the Arctic. Inuit Eskimos only live on a starch bait, or they follow the Atkins diet for seven plus months of the year. You know, there are a few tribes in Africa and South America that live on all meat diets. Uh, but there aren't are many, you know, the Maasai in Africa. You know, but again, you, you know, people, the people who promote these keto diets and these high protein, low carb diets, they bring out these exceptions, but they, they also lie about them. 
So, you know, they're the only exceptions in their own mind, not when you get down to the basic facts. Like, for example, the Maasai in Africa, they're, they're a tribe of uh, sheep herders who have a, uh, a lifestyle that causes at the age of puberty to have males live off beef, milk, and blood. That's their diet. Okay, uh, George Mann was hired by the beef industry to go visit these people in the 1970s to report on them because there's a population that lived on animal foods after the age of puberty and uh, they had no clinical heart disease. You know, you could talk to them, they said they never had a heart attack, never had a heart attack. So George Mann was sent down there by the beef industry to study them. Well, that disturbed terribly. And uh, he, he went down again to visit them, the Maasai. And he wrote a New England Journal, Journal of Medicine. It's called Diet Heart, the End of an Era. Just look it up. Just put in PubMed, Diet Heart, End of an Era, and George Mann. And you'll pull up the article. And, and George Mann, what he found out was, no, they didn't clinically have heart disease. They didn't report heart disease because they were so physically active. They never had a heart attack, but when he examined them on autopsy, they had more atherosclerosis, more closure of their arteries in every decade than any American. Huge amount of atherosclerosis. It's just their arteries enlarged because of all the exercise. And for whatever reason, they didn't have clinical heart disease, but on, on autopsy, they had tremendous heart disease. And, and all, basically all of the people who ate that diet so, you know, the beef industry, the, yeah, the beef industry, they tried to make a deal out of the Maasai, but they only told part of the story. George Mann, M-A-N-N, the end of an era. Yeah. Would your program help a type one diabetic that is underweight? Yeah, we, we, we have those a lot. What you need to do is give them a little more insulin. They're not being adequately treated. So they don't, they're not taking enough insulin, likely. Uh, manipulating, manipulating insulin doses is a common way for adolescent females to keep their weight trim when they're a type one diabetic. In other words, they've discovered that if they don't take enough insulin, they lose weight. And so they use this as a weight loss program. No, it's not right. I don't think I'm recommending it. It's not a good thing to do. So almost all the people with type 1 diabetes are underweight. They just aren't using enough insulin. Or, or they could be, I don't know, start not eating enough food. But a type 1 diabetic who is adequately nourished with our diet and who takes an adequate amount of insulin is going to be normal weight. What do we do if they're still too thin after that recommendation? Add a little extra fat in the form of nuts, seeds, and avocados. We've talked about this a lot, AJ. We've talked about how people lose, have to stay away from nuts, seeds, and avocados. And if you want to gain weight, like a lot of people do, then you eat more nuts, seeds, and avocados. They're not unhealthy. Nuts and seeds and avocados are plant foods designed by uh, nature, by our creator. They're not a mistake. The food's intended for us to get ready for the famine that occurs in the fall and winter. So these particular 
boots and uh, come in season at the end of the summer and early fall. You can pack calories and fat so you have the brutal natural kind. <laughs> but if you don't want to get ready for the winter, which never occurs because you live in a in a heated home and drive around in a heated SUV and uh, you go hunting at the grocery store and the fast food restaurant and you don't feel like you need to gain an extra 20, 30 pounds getting ready for a winter that never causes you to expend energy, then don't eat those things. Okay. Uh, there's a question about what to do for a 98-year-old with chronic UTIs. We had a urologist on the show who said they need estrace. Well, that would be that'd be worth a try. Uh, I used I used to do that uh, until I think I read a few articles that said it didn't work very well. But I would try. I think very safe. No. Um, Terry says my creatinine's 1.56. What can I eat? Well, I gave you a whole lecture on that. You probably watch it on YouTube uh, in, in an hour. Uh, 1.5, you have lost, if that's a true representation of your kidneys. If you look at your lab test, the lab test says you're out of range. Okay, maybe it goes only up to 1.4. So that says you've lost half your kidney function. So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to eat a good diet. That's what you're going to do. That happens to also be low in protein and more liberal in carbohydrates. Do you have to go to the Kempner diet? No, no. I mean, I give people a copy of the Kempner diet who are facing the dialysis ward. Then I, then I would tell them, look, this is where, you, you know, I want you to look at Kempner's work. Seven decades at Duke University, Kempner worked as the head of internal medicine the most famous doctor in diet therapy, published in the major journals, the financial success of Duke for two decades. That's how they made their money with the rice diet at Duke University. So I hand him the Kempner work. I tell him to watch my December 2013 newsletter. And I tell him, look, this is the diet for the nearly dead. So that's where you'll end up, you know, as you get closer to being nearly dead, the more you have to follow this diet. But I, I don't feed them that way, except, no, I, I just offer Kempner diet as an ideal. I don't really think you have to do that. Uh, I think you can accomplish the same thing with a lot more enjoyment, a lot less restriction. But I could be wrong. And that's why I offer the Kempner It's proven. What did I show you? I showed you that, uh, there were 108 cases. Or, uh, I, I have to pull up the slide again, but you saw it. Of the, uh, like uh, 120 cases, 68 were cured with the Kempner diet who had kidney disease. It's on the slide. Go look at the slide. Well, Dr. McDougall, if the Kempner diet was financially lucrative and so scientifically sound and helpful to people, why did they stop doing it? And why doesn't somebody just bring it back? Egos. They developed, I, I, I have to look up the details, but about uh, 20 years ago, it could have been as many as 30, but they had you know, a cardiology department and they decided that they were gonna make their own diet, their own rehab, they call it a cardiac rehab program. And so Duke was using the Kempner diet as the cardiac rehab program, but these you know, people who wanted to claim credit 
Remember I told you the elevation of an idea. Uh, they decided that they were going to get rid. They basically kept kicked the Kemper diet out of Duke. They expelled them after seven decades. And uh, so the Rice House uh, became independent of Duke for the last, say, 20 years or more. And instead, they put in their own rehab program, which had a moderate, reasonable diet. Moderate enough so people would never get better. So they continued to participate in the heart business. That's what they did. Because if they followed the Kempner diet, they would put the heart surgeons out of business if people listened. And, and the blood pressure businesses, et cetera, et cetera. The, cardiac, the diabetes section, they go out of business too, if anybody would follow it. But of course, that's always the caveat is, can you get somebody to follow a diet of rice, fruit, fruit juice, and table sugar? Well, some people did. I mean, some people followed it for 40, 50 years. I've met them. But it ain't easy. I'm sure it's not easy. Can you follow the McDougal diet for 50 years? Well, I've met them. I've met thousands of them. I actually know one very well. In fact, I know a whole family of them. They're called the McDougals. We've been eating this way since about 1977. No apologies. Best food there is. 4,000 recipes published by Mary. 13 national best-selling books, 12,000 patients I've taken care of. You know, I have, I have uh, 12 years of working in live-in programs. More than that, no, I have, I have 34 years. 34 years I've taken care of people in live-in programs. Uh, 16, 16 years at St. Helena and 18 years at our resort in Santa Rosa. So, you know, nothing to apologize for following what we recommend. Well, it's definitely working because Elaine writes, I love Dr. McDougal. I call him the truth teller. I've been eating this way since reading the starch solution years ago and cured myself of prediabetes. Most people I know do not want to hear this information when I try to tell them, but if I reach one person, it's worth the ridicule. He is my hero. Thank you, Elaine, for that nice comment. That's, that's the way I feel about it too, uh, AJ's. You know, it's kind of the uh, poor analogy. Please don't take this for any reality, but you got to put the fishing line in the water to catch a fish. So, you know, you got to go out there fishing for a while and finally you catch one and you feel so good. You feel like Mary and I and Heather do all the time. And I'm sure you do too, AJ, with your show. They always give you credit. I learned that I learned this diet from chef AJ and you go, wow, that feels really good. I helped somebody. Well, I encourage you to do the same thing. Keep out there. Tell, tell, Tell 10 people, one may listen, nine thinks you're from outer space. I don't want anything to do with you. Get expelled as a friend. But one person listens and you did something really good for them. That's why I keep doing it. It feels so good to do the right thing. If I had to, if I had to gauge my success upon saving the world, I'd be a very miserable person. But because I had learned a long time ago when I first started this, that I had to I had to gauge my success about helping one person. You know, that's all, just one person. And uh, you know, I was able to do that sometimes several times a day. You know, it, it became real. And uh, I describe myself as the luckiest doctor in the world. My patients get well. My patients get well. It just, it, those of you listening, those of you who've tried the program. And all I ask is give me 12 days. 
you know, we, we're, there's a book, McDougal says, The 12 Days to Dynamic Health, which you can find easily. And we run a 12-day program. We start with next Friday. Give me 12 days. You know, in 12 days, you'll see whether or not I'm telling the truth, whether I've exaggerated. 12 days. You'll probably find out in four, but we don't teach a four-day program. We tried. We tried to teach a five-day program at St. Lena Hospital one time. And just by the time we got them off all their drugs, they were feeling really good. They had to go home. And it really, they really never sunk in as to uh, what this was all about. So we only ran that program for a short period of time. We changed it to a 10 and 12-day program. It takes that extra five to seven days to really get things comfortable. But in four or five days, you'll figure it out that this is right. Now, I'll tell people this Friday night when they come into the program. One of the things I'll say is it's going to be hard for you and the staff for the next four or five days. You know, because there's a lot of change that has to take place. You may be unhappy. We understand that. You know, we're prepared for it. But by Tuesday, I mean, this is Friday, I'm telling by Tuesday, you'll have got it. You'll be comfortable, you'll like the food, you'll see the changes in your medication, you'll really have understood. And I tell them, if it's not the case, then you need to start talking to all of our staff. And, and me in particular, if you haven't got it figured out by Tuesday, see, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, four, day, four days, if you don't see it, then we need to talk. Rarely does somebody fail to see the value of the program in four days. But we keep you for another, what, another eight days just to cement things in. You really need the 12 days. But you get to do it at home. You know, you, you can, this nice thing about the telemedicine program is there are people who maintain their full-time job. They may maintain their, all their relationships uh, because our schedule is so, uh, so flexible. Uh, we take care of people all over the world, you know, people whose time zone is two hours different than ours, people from Shanghai and Sydney and London and all over the world. And there's, it's not inconvenient at all for them to enroll in the program. And we, you know, we are support staff, you know, Tiffany and Corey and Stacy, they, they sometimes have to get up in the middle of the night and talk to people that are around the world and they don't mind. They're happy to do it. We have a support staff that sees you every day, sees you several times a day. Make sure that everything's working well for you. Make sure your blood pressure is not too high or too low. Your blood sugar is not too high or too low. Make sure you have the right thing planned for your family to eat throughout the day. You know, they're there with you, period. Not just for 12 days. After the 12-day program, we continue to meet with you weekly. That goes on for a while, then every other week for a while. The program is a one-year program just for you know the same enrollment cost, which is a third of what we used to charge for the live-in program. With that same enrollment cost, we continue to have a relationship with this positive you, answering your questions and problems, helping you for an entire year. And you say, well, you know, I still want support after the year. Fine. You know, we have lots of people who decide that they want to have us in their life in a, lives in a, form, a formal manner. And so they sign on for another year at a you know, much, much smaller price for the supportive care from our support specialist, and et cetera. So it, it, we're, we're committed for a lifetime. The way I like to put it is uh, I don't like one night stands. They're not satisfying. 
I like long-term relationships, and that's what we try to develop. Uh, being a general doctor, seeing people in office, that was a seven-minute, one-night stand. That's a quickie, even for me, seven minutes. <laughs> anyway, you like you like that one, right, AJ? It's funny, Dr. McDougall, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, that's what a seven-minute, that's what a one-night stand is for most doctors, is seven minutes in an office visit. I don't like that. I'd like to have, you know, nice, cozy relationship for months, years. Yeah. Well, I've been posting the link in the chat throughout the show to register for Friday's program. And it's also Good. in the show notes. And this has been wonderful. And, you know, you're going to grace us with your presence a second time this month on May 31st, along with Dr. Clarence Grimm. I heard he was great. Yeah, he did a good job and he wants to come back with you because that's how it was originally supposed to be. And people keep asking what the artwork, I know what it is behind you. I know what it is, but they don't. Well, let, let me just take a second to tell you about it. This is where our, this is our, our home. Uh, this is where we had our children. This is where Mary and I discovered the McDougal program. This is where we lived for the first 15 years of our marriage in Hawaii. And the way I discovered all this, most of you already know, but I'm going to burn you for 90 seconds. I was a sugar plantation doctor. I was a general doctor. I caught 100 babies. I did brain surgery in the middle of the night. I pronounced people dead. I saw, you know, 20 people every day. I was a sugar plantation doctor. I worked on a sugar plantation on the Big Island of Hawaii. First of all, I discovered what a lousy doctor I was because my patients who had chronic disease never got better. I never ran out of pills to give them, but they never got better. So I decided I was a pretty lousy doctor. The second important observation was people have different diets in my community. First, second, third, and fourth generation, Filipinos, Japanese, Chinese, and Koreans. They were the plantation workers. My first generation's patients who were raised in the Philippines, Japan, Hawaii, or Korea, et cetera, my first generation patients who lived on rice and vegetables were never overweight. They never had kidney failure. They never had breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, et cetera. They lived on a diet of rice and vegetables. Their children who started out in life on the big island of Hawaii, where we had uh, Texas drive-in right up the street, the home of the Malasada, and McDonald's came to Hilo in 1974. These people exposed to the Western diet got sicker in the second generation. And by the time you got to the third and fourth generation, they were overweight and sick as people I trained on during my experiences on Oahu and in Michigan. So my patients taught me, first of all, the problems not a lack of pills. And second of all, that a starch-based diet is the diet for human beings. If you eat rich food, you get fat and sick, just like aristocrats had for, I would guess, well, I know thousands of years. So that was my beginning. And that's what that is up there. That was the, that was the Hawaiian chain. So still have a great fondness. I just spoke to Cherry Shintani last week. I did a Zoom for the Vegetarian oh, Society of Hawaii, and he talked about the best dollar he ever spent. Yeah, that's all my practice for a dollar. Wow. You're not going to sell this one for a dollar, though, are you? Uh, actually, uh, Heather runs it now. Okay. And That's great. Well, we love, we love seeing you, Dr. McDougall. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, AJ. You're doing and happy, great. And happy birthday this month. And happy birthday to Mary yesterday. 
Yeah. She's 77 and I'll be 76. Great. Thanks. Amazing. It was still around. Well, I'll be getting you something. I'm having it made something very special. Maybe you'll wear it on the next show. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for listening. And I hope to see something on Friday. Thank you, Dr. McDougall. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow when we will be discussing the new book written by the Forks Over Knives doctor, Dr. Matt Letterman and Dr. Alona Pulday. And at 2 p.m. tomorrow, none other than Dr. Doug Lyle for a Q&A. Take care, everyone.